Welcome to episode 100 of Project Freelance. How's it going, guys? My name is Kay Anagonio. If you're new to this podcast, well, welcome. Where you been? We've been here for 100 weeks. We've been waiting for you. Welcome to the podcast. If you're new, hit that subscribe button. If you're not new, if you've been here for a while, have you left a rating on the podcast? If not, you should do that. Let me know what you think of this podcast. You've been listening to it for 100 episodes now. You probably have a pretty good idea of what's going on in this podcast, and you've got a good idea of the kind of guests we have on this podcast and the caliber of guests we have on this podcast. So if you could do me a huge favor and leave a rating, that would be sick. That will help us grow in the charts on iTunes or on Spotify or Anchor or Podbean or wherever you listen to your podcast at. Also, I kind of want to know where you listen to the podcast. Could you go ahead and tweet me at Project Freelance, not Freelance because of Character Count. It's Project Freelance. A link will be down in the description. Tweet me where you listen to your podcast. I'm very curious to know. I would love your feedback more than ever. Thank you guys for listening to Project Freelance. This week on the podcast, since it's episode 100, I thought that we could take it back in time and go over some of the greatest moments of this podcast. I'm going to be going season by season in order. We're going to be talking about these episodes and we're going to be jumping back into them to recap some of the greatest moments on this podcast. Thank you guys for listening to 100 Weeks. You know... By now that there are a bunch of links down in the description that I think will help you out on your journey as a freelance videographer, photographer, traveler, whatever you guys do. There are affiliate links down below to gear, to uh, photography contest sites, lots of different stuff going going on down in the description. So if you guys want to take a, take a second and just browse that at your leisure, that would be cool. Enjoy those links. Enjoy that stuff. I appreciate it. You appreciate it. We all appreciate it. We both get something out of it. It's great. All right. Without further ado, let's jump into episode 100 of Project Freelance. Let's go back in time to season two, where I started having guests on the podcast. And that starts with one of my favorite people in the world, Maddie Mullins from the band Memphis Mayfire and owner of On Point Pomade. If you guys need products for your hair, check out On Point Pomade. If you need music for your ears, check out Memphis Mayfire. And if you need just a lovely Christian man in your life on Instagram, follow Maddie Mullins. (laughs) He's great. All right, let's jump into this podcast. Best moment from this episode. Let's go. How do you still try to motivate your friends that tried to be in music that it didn't really work out for them, but they're, you know, they still want to do it. Like what advice would you give to them? Because I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much work actually goes into, you know, pursuing a self, you know, self-employed type of lifestyle. Yeah. um, You know, people don't like this answer. Anybody that pursues music wholeheartedly and full time, they want it to be a job. They want it to pay their bills. Um, So I don't think that people really want this to be what I'm going to say, but I'm going to be honest. I think that if you've tried everything and music didn't work out for you, you know, like it's just not in the cards. Um, be really thankful just to have music as a hobby. Um, be thankful that music exists, even if it's not paying your bills, because the best times in music, the most enjoyable, uh, the most valuable memories I have as an artist are being in the garage with my friends 
playing God knows what, sounding awful, and just having the time of our lives. No rules, no regulations, no uh, record label breathing down your neck, no fans telling you that they used to like you better when you sounded this way or that way. It's just like all the things that make music uh, just like any other monotonous job, it doesn't exist when it's just for fun. It doesn't exist when it's just a passion and it's just something that you do because you love it. Um, just because music isn't paying your bills doesn't mean that it can't be something that you love dearly and that you devote time to. Um, and I do. I hope that it works out for anyone and everyone that tries. But it's not just about talent. It's not just about drive. There's a lot of very talented, very driven people that never quite got their shot. Uh, they weren't in the right place at the right time, didn't meet the right people to play with. Um, there, there's a million things that, that can um, that can cause a music career to not work out. And, uh, you know, I feel really blessed um, to have had a career that has worked. Um, but I just, I, I still miss those days, those days of being in the garage jamming with my buddies and, and playing awful music and just thinking it's the coolest thing in the world. And um, th those are the times I cherish the most. I love Maddie Mullins. You guys, this guy has been like a brother to me. He has been so supportive of me over the years. And so to have him as the first guest on my podcast, it meant the world to me. And I don't think he realizes how much it meant to me to have him on the podcast to share his insight as a musician. And it's inspired me to really push myself with my music chasing satellites and while we're not touring right now because it's just myself currently in 2020 we hope to play a few festivals so I'm gonna try to put a band together play some festival shows see how the crowds respond and then if they like it from there then maybe we'll do a tour or two or seven or 20 or we'll just tour forever <laughs> but yeah if you're out there and music isn't working out for you just don't give up on it you know, even if you just do it as a hobby on the side and you have like a nine to five job, don't give up on music. Don't give up on your creative side. It's so, so, so important to have a creative side and creative outlet in life because if you, if you don't have one, I would just encourage you to try to find something, try to find a hobby, try to find a creative outlet. It will really help with your stress and it honestly helps with the loneliness of day to day, -to -day life. So Yeah. Don't give up on music, guys. Don't give up on your creative passions. All right, next up, we have Lindsay Lerner, another great friend of mine. I recently caught up with Lindsay a couple months ago for, was it like the 4th of July? When was I in Rhode Island? I don't remember. I was in Rhode Island earlier this summer and uh, ran into Lindsay. We met up, we caught up, and it was great to see her. But we're going to jump back in to this episode with Lindsay to how she got her gig working with Watsky, helping Watsky out. Watsky is a musician and rapper. If you've never heard of him, you should absolutely check him out. But let's see how Lindsay snuck her way into Watsky's life. <laughs> One of the side doors was open just a little bit and I heard music. And so I peered in, had a fangirl moment, like a 12-year-old at a One Direction concert because Watsky was on stage doing sound check. And I was like, okay, I, I'm going to go in there. And so I went to go and open the door and this humongous man <laughs> approaches me and he looks at me and he goes, sup, with the whole, the whole head nod. And I was like, sup, with the head nod. And he goes, you coming in? I was like, yeah. And for some reason, he moved out of the way and he let me in and I had my camera gear and I don't know whether it was the leather jacket or what, but he let me in. And then I just stood there and I was like, well, shit, 
the only person I know that has anything to do with anything here is 3,000 miles away. And uh, yeah, I'm a little screwed right now. And so I took my phone out of my pocket to like pretend that I knew what I was doing. And the guy had texted me back and he was like, oh, word, last minute I decided to end up coming to the East Coast. So I figured why the hell not go to the show? Let me know when you get here. I'll, I might introduce you to our photographer. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm at soundcheck. And so five minutes later, this like old man rolls up and he's got like his hoodie and his snapback on and his like super fly sneakers. And he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, are you Lindsay? Go, huh? He goes, how the fuck did you get in here? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, man. <laughs> you better start locking doors or something. And then he looks at me and he like gives me like the up and down look. And he's like, well, I guess you're not going to blow the place up. So let's go. And so he takes me backstage and I'm like, okay, hands down. This is the best day ever. And so I'm freaking out. I'm getting stopped left and right because I have no credentials, like no press pass, no anything. And I'm just like avoiding security and like hiding in the bathroom most of the time. Got to meet everyone, like George, the photographer. This was when Anderson Pack was was opening for George in, in 2014. It was like amazing. And from that day, I was like, whoa, like I need to be involved like in the music industry. This is so cool. It's so amazing to be able to watch how one person's art and one person's work, one person's music can unite the 2,500 people that are here rocking out at this concert right now. Like the, the high of that, obviously, you know, we experienced it 41 times this summer. It's so cool. And so then after that, about a year later, I had gone out to Los Angeles just for a, a vacation to visit one of my best friends who had moved out there. This was senior year of, of, uh, of college. And, uh, I had, I had found the address of uh, Steel Wool Entertainment of their office somewhere online and showed up at the office. And again, Kevin was like, how the hell did you get, how'd you get in here? And I was like, I don't know, bro, you really got to start locking these doors. And <laughs> then he just kind of looked at me. We had another amazing conversation. And then he explained, he was like, well, why don't you just move to LA and like, you can be my assistant. And I was like, yeah, I am already like, God knows how much money in debt from college. I can't just drop out. This is senior year and, and move to LA and be your assistant. Like I can't. And so then nothing ended up happening from there. And over the year, the year after that, like I had hit him up a few times and just like gave him little bits and pieces of information about Providence and what was going on in the music scene here and, and, and artists that I had liked or wanted his opinion on. And it was, it was cool to be able to have that relationship. And then about a year and a half, two years ago, he called me and he was like, learner, I'm like, oh, oh boy, like, am I in trouble? Like what's going on? And he's like, I've got, I've got a gig for you. I'm like, uh, okay, done, whatever it is. Like, let's figure it out. And he's like, George needs help. And at this point, like, I'm still like, I'm like, George, you mean like George Watsky? Are you for real? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll connect you guys in an email. Bye. He like hangs up on me. And that was, I mean, that was like a year and a half, two years ago. So things change. Exactly. Things change. Don't give up, guys. I'm going to keep saying that throughout this episode. Don't give up on your dreams because you never know what's going to happen. Up next, we've got Mr. Jonathan Wolf to talk about how he found his passion for music and how he almost left it behind for a quote unquote normal life. But music will never truly leave you if you are meant to be a musician. 
I just started writing with a bunch of, you know, bands in the area and all that kind of stuff. One thing, one thing led to another and like, you know, names get passed around back and forth as they do in this industry. And next thing you know, I was getting a job offer in LA. Um, and at a point where I had like quit music cause like I was in a band and then another band and another band. And then I was like, okay, maybe I should go to college and kind of like do the real thing and just, you know, kind of like, you know, be an adult. And then something in me was like, nope, fuck that. So I had dropped out of college too, you know, with that job offer and all that. And, uh, quit my job and moved out west and I moved to LA at the uh, young age of uh, like 19, I was 20, yeah, I was 20. And um, yeah, that's pretty much like where it all kind of happened. And then living in LA, you know, I, I started working as a producer and as a songwriter and I got into artist development and all that kind of stuff with a bunch of different people. I was uh, constantly just being hired to do that stuff. And then at one point the main, um, group of people that I was working with, we got bought out in 2000, at the edge of, end, sorry, at the end of 2012. And, um, my mentor was like, Hey, don't, uh, don't keep doing this. Like go on stage because in all reality, I was like miserable. I, as much as I love doing it, I really like, I feel my best. And I feel most alive when I'm standing on a stage and performing to people. And that's always been the thing since I was a kid. I remember being like, three years old and just imagining like, man, imagine just standing on a stage and just playing to just all these people and all that. And, you know, coming to find out, you know, many years later, that's, that's exactly, you know, the reality that I built for myself. So I took his advice and, um, I had my own band that I had formed in between. It was called the hollowed and I had like written the songs before I had moved to LA. And then after I wasn't really working as a full-time producer or anything like that anymore, I brought back those songs, which is like the worst idea. I should just start it fresh. But um, I had done that. And then um, I had played for another band called Day Shell on Sumerian for a quick minute. Um, I filled in for a band called Nightmares. Uh, I'd also played for Falling in Reverse and Slaves. And kind of like that was like my whole amalgamation where I started playing just consistently between my band and other people's bands. Again, it was pretty much living my childhood. Um, and then in 2015, I took a hiatus and moved up to Seattle. And now I'm back to doing it again because I realized that I, uh, I truly resonate with music and it's the only thing that, I don't want to say like the cheesy thing where it only makes, it's the only thing that makes sense to me, but it's where I find my happiness. And I, I have realized um, after all these years on planet earth that money means nothing to me. Notoriety and fame means nothing to me. It's happiness and music it literally is what brings me happiness every single day. If you guys haven't heard of John's band, Vespera, I highly recommend you check them out. They have some awesome music videos that I got to be a part of the behind the scenes process of. Uh, we filmed in an abandoned nuclear power plant, an abandoned steam factory. I don't know if that's the correct terminology for what the place was, but it was like a big steam factory. Uh, super cool. But next we have Josh Balls from Motionless in White. He owns the Strange and Unusual Oddities and shop and parlor he also runs uh, a bunch of spas and salons he's got all kinds of different things going on i think he has a coffee shop open now he is just capitalizing on the goth theme of life and he is a true goth boy and he is absolutely making a statement in salem pennsylvania if you guys are in the area go check out one of his many many things follow him at josh balls on instagram to see the many things that he gets up to in salem pennsylvania 
I love this guy. And so let's jump back into the most listened to episode of Project Freelance to hear some mental health stories about Tor. To be honest, it, the morale is always super high, you know, for the most part. It's pretty like whatever, but the big thing is loneliness and you don't think that it's a real thing because you're around fucking like tens, twenties, thirties of people. But like you, when you go to bed at night, you, you like drift into this spot of like just utter loneliness because you're by yourself. Like you're in, you might be with all those people around you, but you're all dudes. You don't, you don't talk about emotions. You don't like, um, you don't build like this crazy shit you talk about like dude shit whatever but you don't ever get into these emotional conversations with people that you spend 24 hours a day with because you don't want to like have this awkward day tomorrow about like this blah 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 so it's just that's the biggest thing for was for me was loneliness and i just felt i used to feel so alone and so like disconnected with real life like you'd leave your hometown and and the next time you come back there's a new building built and there's like people life people's lives have moved on and you like have to start over from it's like you like push pause you push pause and you get back and you go to push play but it was you forgot to, it was like you forgot to push pause and it just kept going and you have to try to catch up on all this stuff and by the time you were done catching up you have to leave again and then you'd leave and then you you couldn't connect with anything and there was no connections and that's a big problem with my life. Like me personally is like, I can't connect. I couldn't connect with anything because so much shit in my life was going on. And I, I, I grew up in a house full of dudes. So it's like, I had no emotions. Like I was like a stone wall and like, I've, I've had like emotional issues and it's from, you know, growing up in a house and a dudes going into a band full of dudes and just being around like just bullshit and very like, it was crazy, but like it's it, it does take a toll on you, and I feel like I had to go see a therapist. Like I didn't think I would ever. I was like, I'm fucking, I'm a dude. I don't, I don't do that shit. And I went to see a therapist, and she was like, "You're fucked up." And I'm like, "Thanks, I appreciate it." She's like, "You're very intelligent." I'm like, "Thank you," but she's like, "You gotta like talk." Like she had, she's like, "You don't talk." She's like, and I'm like, "No, listen, I talk all the fucking time. I don't shut up." No, she's like, but you need to talk about, like, Toronto. Shut your hole. She's like, but you need to talk about, like, life, like, real shit. Like, because I was like that, I was always like that, very, I'm a very personable human. Like, I'm the person that all the kids always talk to. Like, I was that dude, but I was talking about other people's problems and never my own. Like, I'm like a fix-it kind of dude. And um, I would never fix my own shit. And that was my problem. Like, I would, I would always be on the road and, like, you know, talking to these fans and these kids about like their lives and how to help fix their lives. And I never fixed my own. So I was just, you know, I felt very broken and very like unwanted at some points and very lonely. So, and I, I know most dudes are like that. I'm most, you know, females too are in the, in the music industry. You know what I mean? So it's like, it, it's just, honestly, it's just lonely. And you might think, you know, all these fans are like, yes, this, 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 this. And all the dudes in your band or the chicks in your band are like, yes, yes, yes. But at the end of the day, it's just super lonely. And that's where it really get, breaks you down, you know. 
So if you want to get into the world of touring, just remember there's a lot you need to know. And there's a lot of episodes on this podcast where I talk to people that are TMs or are in the touring world that will give you guys a bunch of advice, a bunch more advice. So yeah, definitely go back to past episodes of Project Freelance if you missed out on some of these. Up next, we have Christina Rotondo, one of my favorite musicians in the world. And I wanted to talk to her about, you know, not just becoming a YouTuber to become a YouTuber. We talk about the platform of YouTube and what it can do for you, but I don't want you guys to just go on YouTube to try to make a bunch of money because it's not viable. It's not, it's, it's more of an aspirational kind of thing. And Christina talks a lot about that here in this little segment. Enjoy. For me, this is the this is the thing about like being a musician on YouTuber. So um, a musician on YouTube, even, um, and this is the part where, like, as a musician, you do have that extra layer of security. So, like, the main work that I do, like, because I'm consistent with uploads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I do a lot of YouTube work, but I'm not necessarily a YouTuber. And that's the one thing that musicians have over other content creators that they might not have. So, for example, like you know, I, I do work on YouTube, but it's not my primary income. My primary job title is a singer. And I'm lucky in that way because, because I'm, for example, okay, I'm going to use a really generic genre on YouTube here and that's gaming. Um, and I've got some awesome gaming fans and, you know, it's not to say that people aren't as talented as, as anyone else or something like that, but it's like, for example, if YouTube was to shut down tomorrow, I've still got, extra kind of jobs and resources that I can go into. So outside of YouTube, obviously I do a lot of like live stuff. I do covers, I do weddings. Um, I literally work with people all over the world because they like my voice or they want a singer. And that's kind of how I can sustain it. Whereas there are some people on YouTube who literally just solely rely on their AdSense income. And that's where I think people are getting a bit confused by it. That's why a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I want to become a YouTuber because they think, you know, of like PewDiePie and like massive, massive, like people with massive names and massive subscriber bases. And yes, they are at that stage where they're probably getting loads of money from AdSense alone, but it's not something that's sustainable and it's not something that is, um, I mean, it kind of is aspirational, but like, it's it's not something that's viable really. Um, but like, you know, if you've got stuff that's outside of YouTube, then you're doing so much different creative stuff that's really cool. Like, you know, I went when I went to uni, I, I did media and I did arts and stuff like that. So like, to me, I really enjoy like filming and I like the editing of it because it's just creative in general. So I think, you know, YouTube is a creative platform and treat it as that, treat it as a creative outlet. And I would say like, you know, I don't know, like be creative. Don't try to become a YouTuber, just try to be creative. So for me, like, I don't know, I kind of went off a bit there, but I am basically just quite lucky in the way that I've got like loads of different things that I can do as well as YouTube. YouTube's just like another nice creative step for me, which is a nice outlet really. So yeah, before you join YouTube, maybe reconsider it because you're not going to make money off of it. Just think of it as another social media platform like Instagram or Twitter. You could make money off of it if your channel blows up, but don't go into it expecting your channel to blow up because that's not really how YouTube works. There's a lot of things that we don't really understand about YouTube and its quote-unquote algorithm. But, you know, if you want to get on YouTube, go for it. Do it for the right reasons. Do it for fun. 
Up next, we have Alex Wolf, a live music photographer. And Alex, in this snippet, is going to talk to you guys about how to find your confidence, really. How to find your confidence and learn how to approach people and start taking photos for their band or for an artist or for whoever it is that you're trying to photograph. I got a job at Coldstone when I was 15, and I think that's what put me out of my shell to learn to talk to people. I mean, I was serving them happiness, like in a cup, like ice cream, you know? So I think developing your people skills somehow, whether it's getting involved with, you know, an activity, a community thing, like whatever, just finding a group of friends where you can like be yourself and create stuff if you're, you know, wanting to get involved in this kind of industry. And then taking those skills of just walking up to people and not being afraid to say, hey, I'm blah, 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 and I do this. Even if you're not, you know, super well-known or like, you know, you're, you're still honing your craft. Like if you just walk up and you're like, this is what I want to do. Like shows all the time when I was like starting out, I'd just be like, hey, um, you're blah, blah, blah. And I would just be confident. I'd be like, I want to shoot you guys sometime. Or can I, can I shoot this tonight or whatever? Like if you get to a show and you just somehow just talk to people, like, so it starts with there and then just networking. The rest of it is just somehow acting as cool and confident maintaining you know don't be so over eager being excited and, and you know passionate is so important but just like being confident to, to know that you belong there like one of my weird mentalities that i put in my head a long time ago was autographs are so cool like i used to always want autographs but then like it switched to me one day i was like I want to hang out with these people i want to work for these people and if it's like obviously somebody who i'm just like holy shit like crazy for like an autograph's type but like I don't need to do that because I want to be on their level. So if it's, you know, artists, managers or PR people, those are great people to network with, especially like managers, other photographers, other videographers, so that you're all like tight knit. Like that's how you and I met, like, you know, being supportive of each other and not tearing each other down is what's going to help the music industry. Like you don't want to be like, Oh, well, you know, they edit like this or like, you know, you gotta be supportive of one another. If you don't like someone, then, you know, steer clear of them. But try to just at least get to know everybody and feel them out, you know, and then make opinions from there and then find your niche with it and just go and just be kind and be timely and be yourself and just be a good person to talk to. And that's how your networking skills, you know, develop and work out for you from my experience. I love live concert photography. There's been a lot of episodes on project freelance with live music photographers and I love having them on the podcast, to be completely honest with you, because every time I have one on, I learn something new. And that's what this podcast is all about, you know? For me, it was about A, catching up with my friends, B, talking to people that I look up to, and C, learning. I wanted to learn more than I knew, and I've learned I've learned stuff every single week doing this podcast from every single guest I've had. So to all the guests that have been on Project Freelance, thank you guys so much. And I may not feature all 100 episodes in this episode because it would be three hours long. And I don't think anybody wants to listen to a three-hour podcast of mine. But I mean, perhaps you do. Maybe for episode 200, I'll put all 200 episodes together and you can just listen to all of them again. No, I won't do that. That's a lot of podcasts. I don't even want to edit a podcast that long. So let's go to my next guest, which is Butch Loxon from LA, the skeleton of color. You may have seen him on Instagram. You may have seen him on your TV and a music video at a Dia de los Muertos celebration. Butch, 
crafts these beautiful skulls out of styrofoam and he embroiders them. He adds paint to them. He adds hats to them. And he goes out into the streets and he performs with smoke grenades and other props. And he is a beautiful soul. And I wanted to have him on this podcast to talk about how he got into smoke grenades, how how they got incorporated into his routines and how they have changed the game for him and how they've really helped him pop off on Instagram. If you're not following Butch Loxon from LA on Instagram, you should be doing so. Go do it right now. Trust me, you won't want to miss this. When did the smoke come into play? Did you like get inspiration from other Instagrammers or other photos online? Like how did you, how did you find out about smoke grenades in the first place and then talk about, you know, Enola and everything? Well, the smoke grenades, um, they came into play probably within my second performance. But the first performance that I did when I was out there, um, I, I didn't have the access to the smoke grenades. I, they were, no, they were not available yet at get stores. They were just, wow. um, they were just coming, they were just coming out. They were relatively kind of new. Um, and uh, you had to order them on Amazon. Um, or you, you pay mad uh, fees. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so what I, what, the, what I first worked with was those little smoke balls that you got from, yeah. um, from like the like, fireworks. Yeah. The little like the little, blue, pink. Yeah. I know what and, you're talking uh, about. And I made, the first thing I did was I made a little smoke cannon and a little smoke gun. And then I was just like shooting O-rings at like at the photographers and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, I, I, I would, I, I would like put a bunch of them and I light them all at once and I put it in a box and I would just like pose with it and. I would just do like just really like just odd things, and then eventually um, on the side, like the, like I said, the second performance or the first, was well, that third performance? The smoke grenades came in, and then it it just it just it just like just changed Exploded. the whole <laughs> changed changed the whole dynamics of my performances and stuff like that. And bro, I tell you, like in the beginning, like I, if it if I if I wasn't getting great photography to be honest if i wasn't there's was obviously like there was a, a a a really good feedback that i was getting that was really beneficial because in the beginning stages of what i was doing i was putting a lot of money into this i mean and not even knowing what was going to happen the smoking aids like they were at the time were 20 dollars a piece and not mind you that i was popping them like like nothing and i was easily spending hundreds of dollars on um, buying, you know, I, well, yeah, buying materials for the mask, buying um, the smoke grenades, buying props, buying whatever I could just to present it as best as I can, mm-hmm. and um, it definitely worked out. And Nola took notice of what I was doing. Um, within, uh, I remember maybe it was maybe within like six or seven months, they reached out to me and they were like, "Hey, we'd like to send you a care package." Um, and so they they sent it to me, and um, since then we've just built a relationship, and um, you know they they've they've been taking care of me, not all the time, but for the good majority. Yeah, they tell <laughs> Come me. On, that, guys. No, they said I I go through them really fast. Like they sent me a, a box of, um, I think. Okay, so there, there's there's if you can hold fifty in one. They sent me a hundred and fifty smoke grenades. Wow. And I was done with it within a good month. Yeah. You're going through them too quick. Yeah. You can't keep up. Yeah. They, you can't even make them fast. The guy was like, he was like, how did you, how did you already use 150 smoke grenades? And I was like. You're like, because you gave me 150 they, smoke grenades. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so yeah, I went through them really fast. 
My next featured podcast guest is Nick Mishko. He's actually my manager for my band, Chasing Satellites. And I want to bring this topic back up. This is about marketing. This is a little bit of a longer segment, but I think it's super important to freelancers out there. So if you're out there and you need help with marketing, you you need help with brand endorsements, things like that, this episode was super insightful And Nick is, well, I call him Mishko, so I'm just going to call him Mishko. Mishko is a super genius when it comes to brand marketing and how to get these endorsements and sponsorships. So I'm going to let him talk to you guys about marketing. Enjoy this snippet. If you haven't listened to this episode, please go back and listen to it. It's great. Uh, I tell bands, don't think that you can reach out to these companies. They're just going to give you free shit. They don't know you. They don't know what you're about. You, You have to sell yourself. You have to know these you have to have good, great relationships. You have to build these relationships. So, um, so yeah. So I, so I tell my artists, what do they need? Okay, they need guitar strings. Okay, are you on tour? Because an, a company is not just going to give you a discount or free strings if you're not on tour promoting their product. It's you got to got to think, what can I give them versus what they can give us? So, but yeah, we've done Budweiser. Fireball's been very good to us for our college shows. Shout out to Fireball. They've done really good. Spirit Airlines, they've they've been very good to us. They fly a lot of our artists um, everywhere in North and South America. Um, I got some things in the works with some car rental companies and some hotel companies. But again, these relationships and deals don't happen overnight. We're talking six plus months up to a year. I got one, you know, I got one hotel deal I've been chasing, God, for 14 months now. And it's just got to keep chipping away and then before you know it you got that deal and it cuts costs because you know i there's 17 artists on our roster and we're growing it's we need to save money everywhere we can so it's yeah it's how can they help us and how can we help them so my main question no matter what we're talking about is like how did you build how did you make those relationships because you like you said you don't just like get a sponsorship you have to build a relationship with that that person that company so first of all how did you reach out to these people how did you and how did you choose what you needed you know because because like you have to prioritize what you need as well um yeah because time is limited and before you know you could be 18 hours behind the computer and or three days behind the computer and then realize you haven't slept so you know how this goes so yep. <laughs> um, again it comes down to what you need we found that a lot of our artists were traveling and i said well what would be dope what do we need airlines i think i can make it happen and <laughs> it's just reaching out um you'd be surprised I don't know if I want to drop this little secret, but you can if you tweet company. Give the best information uh, for free. Okay, if you tweet companies, you believe it or not, you can get through to a lot of people. And I, when I'm not when I say tweet, I'm I'm not saying like because Twitter seems to be the the place where you bash companies now. But if you hit them up and be like, "Hey, we're trying to get a hold of your your artist rep," or "Hey, we're how, could you point us?" the direction of your brand marketing director or what's an email that we could send you our information and a lot of times a company will get back to you because they're like they're like oh it looks good we're helping this person because it's all public now so start there um or you can also do what a lot of people forget to do nowadays pick up the phone and call some companies and just be like hey i'm such and such in this band um 
you know, to, uh, don't give them a 10 minute speech. Just be like, I'm in this band. We tour a lot. We're looking for, you know, we're trying to look to do a partnership deal. Who can I speak to and have a few minutes of their time in the marketing department? Who can I have? Call these companies. If you want to go after the beer companies, you don't call Budweiser. You call the distributors. If you want to go after liquor companies, you go after the regional distributors. It's, um, or, you know, if there are there, is there, clo- you know, I got a band on my roster. They're real big into skateboarding. So I'm like, well, let's call up that skateboard company and see if we can work a deal. Like, you're always on skateboards in their pictures and shit. Like, let's let's do it. It's get creative. Like we. It's, yeah, I'm actually yeah. I'm actually working on one right now. He was like, "Yo, do you want to like help me promote these?" And now it's to the point where he's like, "Hey, I want I want you to like brand promote these on social media and stuff." And I'm like, "Okay, well, you're not gonna just pay me to film yeah. them, then it, you know, you get, like you also need to pay me." Yeah, you can get creative. You can get creative, and it's um. As far as, you know, we, one of my artists, they want to do a tour and they love candy and we're wanting to call it the sweetest tour ever. And I was like, just any kind of candy or like a specific, like, uh, like pop rocks and shit like that. So trying to get like, um, we're trying to, we're trying to get like Skittles to sponsor it to be like the sweetest tour ever. Um, I was also trying to get, um, Skittles get at me. So, but we were trying to do, uh. Uh, like a South by Southwest showcase and call it the sweetest showcase ever and have like, because I've seen, I've seen promoters um, and a couple of friends of mine, they actually did through, uh, through Sprite and their whole showcase was through Sprite and everyone got free Sprite at the door. Um, you know, you get creative. No, it's, this is the time where no one, people, anything could go viral. And brands want to get on top of that. I mean, for God's sakes, look at Wendy's. They're online trolling people. And, like, that shit goes viral. Like, it's so... um, Yeah, just do some crazy shit. Like, look at that Taco Bell, like, Illuminati fucking ad they did. Like, everyone was like, wait, what? What What is Taco Bell doing right now? Like, I gotta go to Taco Bell. Yeah, it's... And, and people are going to be like, well, what the hell are they talking about? What has this got to do with music? Again, this has to do with taking your music to the next step. It's driving that Ferrari. You know, if you have a Ferrari, you're going to want you're going to take that Ferrari to a car wash. It's the same thing with brand marketing. You're taking your you're music. Gonna want, yeah. You're going to want some wheels. Yeah. You're going to want some. No, you're going to get the oil change. You know, it's it went, windshield wiper fluid. It's the same thing. Think of it as like the accessories for the car are like guitar strings, guitar picks. It's the same thing. And no, and I'm going to get called crazy when I say this, but really no brand is, everyone's a target, everyone's an opportunity. I don't want to say target because that sounds bad, but every, every brand, um, we've reached out to some water companies because my artists. Oh yeah, yes, that is so smart. We, I mean, look at Monster. They do yeah, Monster Water for yeah, Warp Tour yeah. or did, <laughs> rest in peace. Yeah, I know. But, uh, but as far as, um, you know, these companies and stuff, did you, you know, I, I tell artists, okay, because monster, you know, you don't have to go through the same company that is going through everyone else, go through their competitors. And then that way, you know, there might be an up and coming energy drink, you know, that, that wants to compete and take down the, 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 you know, do what you can to, to get these brand partnerships going. Get you a brand partnership, baby. Yes. Get it.
Um, yeah, brand partnerships are super important. I've been trying to get sponsored by Dr. Pepper for like 10 years of my life now. Uh, one day it will happen. One day I have a tattoo of a Dr. Pepper can on my body. I thought that would do the trick, but clearly it didn't do the trick because I'm not sponsored by Dr. Pepper. I would love for this podcast to be sponsored by Dr. Pepper. I'm going to try to make that happen in 2020. Dr. Pepper sponsorship 2020. Come on now. Tweet me, Dr. Pepper, please. All right, so the next guest that I wanted to showcase on this podcast, one of my favorite episodes, was the episode I did with Kevin Lyman, the founder of Warp Tour. And in this snippet, you guys are going to hear us talk about Franz, Chris Franzak. If you don't know who he is, he's the vocalist from Attila. He's an entrepreneur, businessman, super smart guy. He actually recently tweeted that he wants to help bring Warp Tour back, and he wants to sit down with Kevin Lyman and talk about it. And so I just wanted to highlight this section of the podcast where we actually talk about Franz for a second and what a smart guy he actually is. And not only that, but if Warp Tour were to continue, what it would need. So enjoy this. Let us come out there. We want people to hear us. Yeah. We want people, the most people to possibly hear us because you know what? People aren't going to go through all their lives like singing Suck My Fuck. You know, <laughs> it's not... It's not. Oh my God! It's not really possible for a moment in time. Yeah. And if you took the time to get to know people like Franz and that, and mm-hmm. these people like that, they're actually genuinely yeah. good people. Like Franz is a businessman. He's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. He's, He's a good guy. He found a shtick, and yep. I would say a lot of that stuff that he does is shtick. Because yeah, absolutely. So he doesn't walk around the street doing. And say so suck my fuck. Like, yeah, he's you know, not I, that kind of guy. But you know what? When, <laughs> the dude was on Made for Christ's sake. And you know? then when you have, you know. A band like Antiflag that's always said some very important things. Yeah. They're like, let us play right after them because you know what? Their fans are going to hear us. Yeah. And maybe they're going to gravitate over to something mm-hmm. else that's more meaningful. Yeah, and hear about, you know, like the state of the government and how they oppress people. And, yeah, and, you know, and, and, I, and that's the thing because people don't realize that my background was always politically active. Mm-hmm. We were always involved philanthropy. We were always throwing benefit shows in L.A. We always wanted change. And, I, you know, I want change, too. But the scene really needs to pull together. Yeah. It really needs to pull together. You, don't, you guys don't get the support of big pop radio. You, don't, you, guys have to, you guys are dependent on each other. You guys really, that's what made punk. We, we all depended <laughs> on each other. Yeah. And I think it needs to get back to that. Yeah. And I've been told that, you know, maybe with Warp Tour gone, that'll happen. I hope so. Yeah. Know, you know, I don't know how Warp Tour kept it from being. <laughs> but if that's what people say, yeah. then great. Maybe I missed something there. Yeah. I mean, other than like that, like, how do you think people could come together? How, how should that happen? You know, like, what's the way? Because obviously social media Be, is being not. Being willing to discuss things face to face with people. That's why I always said, anyone who had a problem with me, come meet me. Come talk face to face. Exactly. Uh, the ones who did, usually could find some sort of common ground. We may agree to disagree on a couple things. Mm-hmm. But then I always say, put yourself in my shoes. When, I have, when you're making those decisions at such a rapid-fire pace that you don't really get to think about them. Yeah. You know, you've been out on the tour. and You see how quickly we make decisions out there because we have to. You have to. Like, when it's raining, like, it, that's like critical, you know? critical time. And there, was there a couple decisions maybe if I had time? If I had time to go sit for a few hours or <laughs> something, maybe I wouldn't have made. Yeah. But you learn from those and you move on. Um, you know, people will go back to certain instances on Warp Tour over a 24-year and pick one or two little right. things. Yeah. But then I say, put yourself in my shoes. Mm-hmm. On that day, why don't you... What would you have done? Yeah, if you were dealing with <laughs> 
storms oh, coming yeah. at your venues, 10,000 people, lightning, someone's Tornadoes, asking you this. Like. You got people, you know, it's just, you know, you know, it's just, and then you're being asked by people that you respected to, mm-hmm. you know, let an artist play a set um, that didn't go down with other artists, but then those artists didn't give me the respect to come talk to me about it face to face. And it's all of a sudden on social media, it gets blown out of proportion. Yeah. Uh, to some people, it was very life and death, but it wasn't in the whole realm of it. But if we sit and talk about it, um, and you know what? I probably looking back at it, there's a few decisions that I, if I had the time yeah. and the ability, definitely, we don't get to take it to a boardroom. We don't get to ponder it. You are the boardroom. You know, and I, I am the boardroom. <laughs> I mean, and I'm watching a, a difference as I move into the world of academics, where they over, they think mm. about things. They have committees on every decision. Yeah. So you have to go through like a, a process. process. Touring is not a product. You you become very. You have to be very instinctive. Yeah. You have to go with your gut. And live and die by it. Yeah, and hope that you don't fuck it up along the way. <laughs> and, and you're going to make some fuck-ups. But you know what? Now all of, everyone can go study what we did and then avoid those areas. So maybe they can create that utopian space where there's no issues. Yeah. Where every person's perfect. And cohesive. Everybody yeah, but, gets it. But then you do, yeah. to move on, you have to be willing to have conversations with people with different points of view. Definitely. Oh, Kevin Lyman, tour dad. I love that guy. Thank you, Kevin, for being on the podcast. Thank you for all your support over the years. He actually allowed me to photograph my first warp tour, my second warp tour, my third warp tour, my four, and then go on warp tour. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Kevin. Your your creation greatly impacted my life and so many other photographers' lives and musicians' lives. So thank you for warp tour. We appreciate it. So my next guest is Adam Elmacias. If you guys don't know who Adam is, he is a live music photographer. And I have looked up to this guy as a photographer for years. I ran into him recently at a Sigma event and I got to chat with him longer than five seconds, which was really cool getting to actually like talk to him in a relaxed setting where we're not trying to photograph bands or we're not trying to work or we're not just saying, hey, what's up? And then passing passing each other by uh, we actually got to have a conversation, and it was super rad. So, yeah, I wanted to have Adam on the podcast to talk about live music photography, how he got into it, and how he met some of the first bands that he really helped grow as a photographer. Like, his photos really helped these bands stand out because people knew it put a face to the music. So here is how he got started in live music photography as well as how he met the band All Time Low and started touring with them. The, re- the reality of it is if they don't have the money and nobody wants to pay you, then you're not going to be able to make money doing said things. So uh, to solve the problem, maybe you have to sidestep and, you know, improve on your photography and work in other areas of photography that might not be music, but are, um, you know, still help you progress forward, which I think is the goal. Or, I mean, the alternative is, I mean, you just move. <laughs> if the work isn't, isn't there, then you need to move. I mean, we have legs, so... I like not to be like not I mean like obviously it's way harder than just move for most people but I mean that is the reality too you know people move for jobs so um all time low I met initially I went on a tour well, I'd seen them a few times in Wisconsin I had met them but they didn't like we weren't friends it just was like a kid kind of harassing them and then I went on this tour they did called the Man Whores and Open Source Tour in early 2008. I was with a band called Just Surrender, who was like the opening band of that tour. And I was on that tour because 
I went to Canada to do a photo shoot, some photo shoots with my friend from Chicago. I think I was like 18. And then I went down to Buffalo and hopped on this tour because my manager at the time managed the band and forced them, I'm pretty sure against their will, to let me ride in the back of their van. So they had like a really tall singer and he slept in the back seat and it was my first time being a van tour and I like took up half of his bed and he wasn't stoked. So, but like, I didn't just, I didn't know these things. I just thought like they wanted me on tour. Anytime I get to see Adam, I always have a good time. He's a great guy and I hope to work with him in the future and interact with him more on a personal level outside of music photography. All right. Up next, we have Rob Palmer. He is known as the digital nomad. This guy has been doing journalism for years and I wanted to get his insight on what it takes to finally pull the trigger and quit your full-time job and start freelancing full-time, making that transition. Enjoy. I loved books. As soon as I you know, learned to read and discovered books, I was fascinated by by books and magazines. And uh, I read all the time, and I used to write stories and all kinds of things. So I knew from a very young age that that was really what I wanted to do, if I could make it happen. So the fact that I was able to make it into a full-time living was was fantastic. And I still enjoy it now all these years later. I'm still write usually at least a thousand words a day and will do for many years to come, I think. I mean, like you, it took it took you like a like a situation. It took something to happen to you for you to quit your job. So like for for other people, like what what are some motivators for that? Yeah, it is a big step. I talk to a lot of people who want to become freelancers, but as you say, they're just afraid to take the, the step forward and make it happen. They don't want to give up the security of the full-time job and the monthly salary and all that, which, of course, I can understand. But uh, in today's world, job security isn't what it used to be. So if you're relying on one employer, you're, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. You might have a job this month, but it doesn't mean you're going to have a job uh, you know, six months time or next year or the year after that. Whereas if you're um, a freelancer, you usually have multiple clients. So if one client drops out for some reason, it's not the end of the world. You still got the rest of your portfolio of clients to, to continue working for and earning money. And the other thing with freelancing is something that you can start as a, as a part-time, as a side hustle, part-time project. So you can do a bit of freelancing at the weekend and evenings and you can you know put your toe in the water that way and find out if it's right for you and if it is then you can build up the work which is exactly what, what I did but um, so I was I had a full-time job with an ad agency and uh, I was getting married at the time so we needed some extra cash to, to help pay get the deposit for the house and everything so I started doing a bit of freelance work uh, in evenings and at weekends and after a while I was earning more from my freelance work than I was in my full-time job and I thought okay well this is it <laughs> this is time to quit and, and do the freelancing full times and and I've been doing it ever since and that's how Rob Palmer became known as the digital nomad thank you Rob for coming on the podcast it was great talking to you and connecting with you up next we're going back to our episode with Josh Adams. He gives 10 tips for touring photographers and videographers. And I want to just jump into his tips for shooting live video. I hope these help you guys out. If you haven't listened to this episode, be sure to go back and check it out. There are a lot of great tips that Josh gives in this episode, and I don't want you to miss out on it. We've done tons of episodes about live music photography and videography, and I think this is a really, really great episode. 
tips if you're if you're like a videographer for doing some live stuff um i would say one of the biggest ones is um make sure that you shoot with a reason um i was i ne- i had never really thought about it this way but um it was like two years ago um one of the guitar players for one of the bands that i was out with asked me like um he basically just asked me like when you when you shoot stuff do you already know how you're going to use it like when you're getting a certain angle do you do you know how you're going to place it into the final project or like where it's going to go like basically are you shooting already knowing what this is for and i was like i kind of realized like no i'm not i'm just kind of running around pressing record uh when i think it looks cool you know (laughs) um which is fine depending on the scenario but i think if you're if you're out on the road with the band it's 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 makes a big difference to like have a game plan of what the video that you're gonna make is and then get shots geared towards what that idea already is um like i like to get i like to get uh it out for me before each show and then i'll take notes on like what if there's a specific part of this song that i want to get or like where i want to be with what lens at this point you don't have to get super detailed but i think it helps just to have a game plan for the show of what you're going to shoot and then a game plan ahead of time of like how i'm going to use these clips you know definitely yeah i think i think i'm i'm the same way like i i know what you're talking about you just like run around and you like try to get as much as possible and you don't really like process like okay wait but why am I filming this like you need to have a why for for what you're doing and for me personally like I always tell people that I film things backwards so like before I even push record like I already have the entire video edited in my head I already know what it's gonna look like and I just have to like reverse engineer and like get those shots that I'm gonna place in there and that's just like personally how my brain works like in a creative way um, is I just, I just have to see everything finished before it's even started because it's the only thing that makes sense to me. It's like creating Absolutely. a movie that you already have the script to basically, but it's like real life documentary stuff with no script. Well, that's beautiful. And I think that's like, that's what makes you a storyteller is that you see, you, you can see like the end game in your head and you're not just putting together like a random montage, you know? Yeah, Definitely. So this the the next one kind of goes along with that. Um, another video tip is to make sure that you're you're creating um, and like building a story in your video instead of um, just kind of like picking a cool song of theirs and putting putting music or putting like clips kind of randomly over the music. Like you don't have to. I don't know. I guess it's all personal preference. It's all what the band wants you to make. But um, for for like the specific scenario when you're on the road as a videographer and they want you to make recap videos, um, I've been trying to do more like I've been trying to think of them more as miniature documentaries as opposed to a recap video of, of, of the show or the day. Um, because I think it's just, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Like if you can create a story of what was going on throughout that week, um, and then create like, create an experience out of the video, 
um, I think people will latch on to that a lot more. Um, and just like music, I think a way to capture people's attention too is think of it how like, you know, music a lot of times will have some sort of intro. Maybe it's like a soft beginning and then there's a buildup and then there's the big climax of the song and then there's like a decrescendo at the end. It's in the your I think your visuals should be like that as well, like kind of draw people in at the beginning um, in somewhere in the middle, make their a big put in a big climax scene and then try basically like instead of having the video like in your face nonstop the whole time, I think it's important to like, you know, make a climax, make a like low point, like just add some more emotion to it and i think thinking of it like thinking of it as more of a miniature documentary as opposed to just a recap video helps helps you to like build more of a of a story into what you're doing i always love these episodes that are about live music photography and videography because that's what i love to do most you know i love being surrounded by music and i love being surrounded by that energy and so there's something about capturing that energy that is so special and so you guys know i'm trying to get on tour in 2020 if you are in a band if you are in a traveling art piece congregation I don't know what I'm trying to say. If you have a tour in 2020 and you need videography or photography or somebody to sell merch, I can do all three of those. I would love to learn more things like lighting and wireless frequencies and things like that. So um, I'm ready and willing to learn and I'm super excited to get back out on tour in 2020. And uh, up next, up next, we have one of my absolute favorite episodes. I spoke with rocket photographer Eric Kuna. I've been following this guy on Instagram for quite a while. He photographs all the uh the major well and non-major major and minor space flights space rocket launches launches into space this guy is a photographer for rocket launch photography that's what he does and i was fortunate enough to get to go to nasa earlier in 2019 and it was a life-changing experience it was absolutely incredible getting to see behind the scenes of such a magnificent place and such a big part of American history and American, you know, our, what we can do and what we have been able to build and create and craft. And I am super excited that I got to speak with Eric before I got to go to NASA. And unfortunately, I didn't get to photograph a rocket launch because it got delayed for like five days and I had to leave. But yeah, this episode is definitely in my top and I hope you guys enjoyed this little flashback into it shooting somewhere between uh for launches pad shots usually uh iso 100 uh unless i have to adjust it it's pretty much iso 100 um the only time i really adjust it if i don't know if it's a launch window where the light will be changing like this last falcon heavy was a interesting one because the launch window went from um about six o'clock to about eight o'clock so that was late afternoon all the way until almost night so your lighting could have changed tremendous tremendously during that time so for those launches uh, we'll have variable settings but for most launches it's it's a standard formula it's iso 100 somewhere between f8 and f14 somewhere mattering on what you're trying to do and your shutter speed somewhere between mattering on a wide shot uh one 
eight hundredth, one one thousandth of a second, all the way up to this last launch. I shot an engine shot at a, a close up at a one sixteen thousandth of a second. <laughs> yeah, so pretty nuts. That's amazing. Oh but my the God. the rocket provides the light. I mean, this ro- these rockets are so bright that they bring the light. So a lot of the times you're adjusting your camera to feature the rocket light rather than the ambient light. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people get screwed up with in the beginning is they're exposing for the scene rather than exposing for the rocket. And that's really, I mean, they vary within that. I mean, I can't say that there's like a tried and true setting, uh, but I will say that where I kind of differ, I think a lot of times in my shots is I tend to run lower ISOs than most people. And I tend to run faster shutter speeds. I tend to, to go a little bit darker and uh, shoot raw. I always shoot raw um, to bring a lot of that detail back in post. Because if you lose that detail in the flames and then the plumes and then the intense light from the rocket, it just, it, it's that's really the star of the of the show. It's the rockets, the star. So you always want to uh, expose for the star. And now I know how to shoot rockets. I haven't shot one yet. I am still awaiting the day where I will be able to photograph a rocket launch. They're just so far away. It's like three hours away. Like, why does it have to be three hours away for me to go see a rocket launch? Why couldn't they just launch them out of Los Angeles, out of the city, straight out of the city, just so I can have rad rocket photos with Los Angeles as the background? Yeah. Uh, one day, one day I will get out and I will do some rocket photography. Maybe I'll go back to Florida and hang out with Eric and shoot with him one day. That's kind of a goal of mine, honestly, would be a shoot with him. Uh, so yeah, Eric, if you happen to listen to this episode of Project Freelance, let me know. Uh, I'm down. Let's do it. All right. So next up is Michael's Moments. All right. So if you are a photographer and you want to get into wedding photography, I wanted to give you guys some tips on how to get into wedding photography, some of the best ways to get in, and we're going to take it back to the folks at Michael's Moments for that. Normally, I would push them to like Thumbtack or like what me and Nicole do is we use Wedding Wire and The Knot. Those are very expensive to kind of get onto, but once you've kind of grown some kind of, how you say, like presence, you can get on there. But in terms of where you want to start, I actually recommend Craigslist to everybody because even now to this day, like our apprentice who we're teaching, we actually set up her wedding website and she charges people 50 bucks an hour. She goes on Craigslist, spends $5 a month promoting it. And yeah, she has to kind of rummage through the muck, but it's given, it's given her a lot of experience. Um, the other way I would get to kind of start is I would go and talk to a studio. Most places have studios. Um, I, I Maybe I should explain. A studio is a wedding corporation that is usually in an area. Like, for example, we have Yvonne or Jolie or what me and Nicole, we shoot for Essence. And basically, they can get you second photographer positions for like maybe 200 bucks. And you shoot for the whole day. You get to learn from somebody who already has experience shooting and it's a much quicker way into getting into the wedding photography game i don't it doesn't really help anywhere else but definitely if you want to get into weddings those are the two big places work for a studio as a second photographer or jump on craigslist it still works 
Craigslist, man, who would have thought, right? Like, you can still get good gigs off of Craigslist. Just don't go for any of the sketchy gigs on Craigslist, guys. <laughs> All right, up next in our little recap here, we have DB. He is a photographer and urban explorer, and he had the opportunity to explore Joliet Correctional Facility in Illinois extensively, and I wanted to just bring this episode back because... One day, I hope to start an urban exploration museum where we can have artifacts from all of these abandoned places in this museum and people can come and safely explore our museum of urban exploration. And so they are actually turning Joliet Correctional Facility into a museum similar to what Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia has done. They turned an abandoned prison into a museum and they've kept it, well, they renovated it and have made it so that it looks exactly like it used to and it's absolutely amazing there's barely anything obstructing it from being a an abandoned looking prison they do have some plaques up they've got some ropes up where you can't go um but there's not really too much that is blocking the view or that would kind of stand out in photographs that don't make it look authentic. It looks super authentic, and I loved exploring the Eastern State Penitentiary. But yeah, let's go back to this episode and hear what DB has to say about Joliet Correctional Facility. I know I come back to the Joliet Correctional Center a lot because I'm I mean, one of my favorite places. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Uh, they're actually working on renovating it to turn it into a big museum slash... They have a whole ton of stuff they want to do with it, but they're trying to restore it back to what it was because they had such a problem with people. They're just breaking in left and right and obviously setting stuff on fire and destroying stuff. And it was just becoming, it was a huge hazard. I mean, this place isn't exactly, not exactly safe. I mean, there's floors falling in. They it closed in 2003. Pretty much they locked the gate and just left it, you know, it sat for years. So, I mean, they have, there's anything from prison records there to x-ray machines, furniture. I mean, everything was just left there. So it's really cool. I mean, they have a ton of stuff, but that also makes it extremely unsafe because, I mean, anything from asbestos to lead to the floors falling in, it's, you really have to be careful there. So it's kind of, it's, it's a work in progress. I mean, the city of Joliet, the Joliet Historical Museum have done a phenomenal job with fixing it up so far. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot more to go. Like right now, you can't go in the cell houses. You can't go in certain parts of the hospital. I mean, there's a lot that's kind of off limits, which I was I was extremely lucky. All last winter, I got to shoot. Pretty much they open the doors and say, here you go, have fun. So I got to see, I literally have pretty much every square inch of that place photographed because, I mean, when you spend five and six hours a day there, you learn to get around and learn to shoot everything i mean but yeah i mean it's it's totally worth it if no one's ever been there to go do a tour i mean they did the blues brothers there they did prison break there i mean those are everybody knows those those are huge so it's really cool to go through we've been working on uh shooting photography like everywhere where prison break was and showing that scene from the show and then what it looks like now i've done the same with blues brothers i've shot you know the cell joliet jake was in I've shot the cells that Gacy was in and Henry Brisbane. I mean, I've shot where all these people have stayed, and now I have pictures of them. So it's been it's been really cool. 
I love talking about urban exploration with people. It's one of my favorite topics. Aside from live music photography, abandoned world photography is my next second favorite. Most definitely. I love, love urban exploration. And I will be featuring yet another urban explorer here in a few minutes. And uh, we'll talk more about urban exploration in this recap. But... Right now, I want to go to Brian Cox. He is a content creator. He is currently working with Bring Me the Horizon and Hollywood Undead, and he recently was with The Used in the studio. And this guy is amazing. He's so cool, and I've had the pleasure of getting to hang out with him a little bit here and there and shoot some shows with him. And so I wanted to bring this episode back up because... He talks about how much he has creative freedom, but how much he actually also works with the artists that he is working for to create this content for them. So here is Brian Cox talking about how he works with Ollie Sykes of Bring Me the Horizon to create content for the band. I mean, this was another opportunity that kind of came out of left field. Um, I didn't have any relationship with the band or know. I never even met them before. Um, I've been to some Which of the shows. Which is crazy. That's crazy yeah. to me. I've been to some of their shows. Um, obviously, have been a fan of their music. Um, and I actually, in November, had seen them in Belgium. Um, Fever was playing with them in Belgium. I was out on another tour. And I ended up going to that show. And watching Bring Me, I was like thinking just to myself, like, man, this is such a huge production and their new, you know, I love the new music and, you know, I just kind of thought, man, it'd be sick to make content for these guys. Like whoever's doing it is really lucky. They have an opportunity to make some really cool shit. And that, and that was that I didn't meet them that night. I didn't, I didn't even tell anyone that. And then finally, you know, come up this year, I just got a phone call from their management and, um, you know, it came from a refer, someone had referred me to the band they were looking for someone and my name came up um just from a, a referral so i uh you know i took the opportunity did a couple of weeks with them and in, in the states just to kind of feel it out because again we didn't know each other I'm literally jumping on the road with a band i don't know and they don't know me and so i just got out there and and uh immediately was as flexible as possible on the creative side like you know, anything they had in mind, I I tried my best to adapt to kind of their style. Um, you know, in the beginning, you know, before I had even started on day one, I was getting an email um, from Ollie about, um, you know, some style preferences he has and some suggestion. But there was never any kind of like demand like, hey, this is how it has to be done. It was just more so like, you know, hey, if you want to create some stuff that we're going to be stoked on, here's here are some tips of like what we like. And, uh, you know, uh, shooting with some camcorders, which I thought was kind of hilarious at the time when I read the email. I was like, <laughs> the hell, I got this. I got this badass black magic Ursa. It shoots in 5K. does raw. It does all this crazy <laughs> stuff that like any like video nerd would be stoked on. You know, talking about dynamic range and color and all this bullshit. Right. And this guy is coming at me saying, "Hey, why don't you pick up some camcorders before you start touring? <laughs> and let's and let's see what we can make." And uh, you know, instead of instead of trying to like toot my own horn or like 
tell, you know, put him in a position like, no, I'm the video guy. I just wrote him back and was like, you know what? I'm, I'm open to trying some new things. Let's, let's go. For it. And so I, I was on tour with Hollywood Undead at the time. We were going through the UK and I, uh, I went ahead in some little secondhand shops. I mean, 30 bucks here, 20 bucks there, like literally like shit camcorders. And I found this one that's like a 1996 Canon 8mm high 8 tape <laughs> camera. And, wow. uh, and, you know, I was like, that's the one. Like, I'm, I think this is it. Like, this, I knew it the second I picked it up, I just felt it. I was like, this is the camera that's going to make the vibe, you know, what they're looking for. So I picked that up and, you know, we got out to day one and the best part was like all right so i have these cameras i shot the festival i flew from the uk i went on four different planes in a row to make it to their show in jacksonville on time because any direct flight would have got me there late so i had to do this crazy travel day got off the plane literally ran to their show festival at uh uh welcome to rockville in jacksonville and I'm shooting with these camcorders that I'd never even really turned on. And, uh, and it brought me back to like high school again, because I'm like, Oh my God, these are the same cameras I used to shoot my first video. <laughs> on. And, uh, and I'm like shooting one of the biggest bands right now with the these world. fucking cameras. <laughs> like, yeah. Holy shit. It's insane. So I ended up, uh, you know, we got all this footage. Oh, uh, hung out with the guys a bit that night it, it was all all good and you know they were eager to see footage and i'm like all right yeah let me find a way to get this stuff on the computer oh great this is another <laughs> obstacle now so i spent the next two days uh we were in like north carolina of all places where there's like no video resources and so i'm like searching on the internet on amazon and all these different places to find you know certain cables and some some won't work with the mac laptop that i have and it was just kind of a nightmare um the first few days until i figured out my system which really comes down to a 70 dollars cable from best buy so um yeah once i mean they've now you know the band is very hands-on with with their content um you know, even, you know, if you've been to any of their more recent shows, they have a lot of, um, you know, Ollie's creating that stuff literally on, Wait, they you have know, a lot of what? on his own on stage, uh, content like video walls. Oh, okay. So there's, there's content flying around on these video walls on every song. And, uh, and he's very involved with the creation of that stuff. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll finish a video and um, I, I would say I have I actually have a lot of creative freedom because I, I make something and then I show it to them and then they say yes or no, really. It really comes down to that. And, you know, of course, there'll be some notes here and there, but it'll be slight notes. You know, it'll be like, you know, I don't like that shot of me. Do you have a different one? Or, you know, maybe take that text off and do this instead, you know. 
So shortly after this episode, I actually went and photographed a Bring Me the Horizon show in San Diego, and it was absolutely incredible. I haven't seen them play for years, so it was really cool to see them play again and see them play new stuff, which is super rad. Um, It was amazing, and I ended up making a little tutorial video about how to photograph arena tours because it was in an arena. And so you can check that video out on youtube.com slash just the letter K if you guys want to check out that video or any of my content. So up next, I wanted to bring this episode back because I hopefully in 2020 will be working with this guy as a videographer. Um, He's got big plans. He's got a lot of cool things happening. And his name is Joe Large. And you might remember the episode where... I talked to him about working for National Geographic. He's shot for the BBC. He's shot for Nat Geo. He's done all kinds of stuff in the uh, wildlife and adventure sector. And I really want to work with him in 2020 on a project or several projects. So I'm going to bring this episode back for you guys. I hope you enjoy this episode with Joe Large, this little snippet about working on a Nat Geo show. It's funny saying this, but if you don't talk about yourself, nobody will, you know, Uh, in that aspect, like you got to be current and like, Hey, look, I've been doing this recently and blah, 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 whatever. Um, so I tried to stay active and a friend hit me up and he's like, Hey, uh, a friend of mine's, uh, a filmmaker out in Aspen and they're looking for a drone pilot to do this thing. And I was like, Oh yeah, dude, I'm down to fly, whatever. And so I got in touch, um, with my now buddy, Matt from vital films. And he's like, yeah, we're, we're doing this, uh, hostile planet show and it's like right in your neighborhood so yeah i linked up with them and it was literally like in my backyard maybe six miles away from my house where we were shooting up on quandary which was kind of ironic um because that's the mountain that i spread my mother's ashes at and so it was kind of like a whole coming of full circle for me like yeah i was like i got up there and i'm starting to get emotional about it now (laughs) but uh yeah it was it was definitely a, a pretty crazy experience it was awesome um yeah, and that was Hostile Planet. We shot the Mountain Goat segment of the very first episode that aired uh, in the beginning of April. But So I obviously watched it because, I mean, I knew you were a part of it and I had to check it out. And I, like, watching that, when the when the little baby birds were falling <laughs> down the mountain, I know you didn't film that, but <laughs> what? I was watching it just in utter terror oh the whole time. Dude, that oh. and the snow leopard <laughs> in the very beginning. Yeah, oh like, my God, what? Yeah, it's, it's funny. So I didn't screen it before it aired, and we had, like, a little viewing party here at my house. There was, like, 20 or 30 friends over and I was just like, oh, my God, like, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't seen Hostile Planet, listeners, you have to check it out. It's absolutely one of the most beautifully shot. Like, the cinematography is absolutely, like, astounding. And it's, like, things like, did they shoot this in a studio? Like, right. it's so perfect. Right. It's oh. so perfect. Yeah, it was, I was God. super stoked to be a part of that project. Um I was like, so how long dream. were you guys filming for? I'm sorry. How long were you guys filming for? Uh, we shot for four or five days up on Quandry. And then they shot the other part where the river was in uh, Glacier National Park. And I think they were on that shoot for 10 days. So two weeks. So you weren't like camping weeks. out there, huh? What's that? You were like going home every You weren't camping or anything. You no, were just I going was, home every day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was just like six miles away from my house. So I just drove back to my place. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. So it was literally like in the neighborhood. Yep. Yeah. And so now I actually live closer to it. I'm like literally probably three quarters of a mile away from Quandry, which is kind of cool. I can see it from the house. 
but yeah, it's funny. Like when I got there, I was like, all right, I'm working. Let's do it. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like in total work mode. And then I remember on the last day of the shoot, when I pulled out, I was like, holy fucking shit. I just shot for Nat Geo. Like, like check. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what <laughs> yeah. just happened? How, what? <laughs> and then it was, it was even more surreal watching it when it was on. So. Oh yeah. And you're like that. I, you, you did that. Like you yeah. made that and it's on TV, dude. Like that's huge. It's massive. Yeah. It was, it was, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a long time coming. A lot of, you know, footwork to get to the point to get that call. It's like worth it all though. 100%. Up next, we are throwing back to the episode I did with Kyle Hewlett. He is a really good friend of mine and he is a digital marketing expert. He works with bands to help promote singles, uh, merch packages, all kinds of stuff. And I wanted to bring this snippet back because I think it's super important for bands to know that once you have a single out, that's great, but you need to nurture that relationship with your fans, with your audience. You need to keep uh, keep in touch with your audience and comment and DM and be involved with what they're doing. So I wanted to just throw back to this episode real quick. For a band that, say, has a new single that comes out, what steps should they be taking to promote that and to get that out there and talk a little bit about the process and, like, how how because you could just do like a facebook ad but like what there are more like specific things you know like there are more specific steps you need to take right so i think you know that's a great question i think one of the best things to start thinking about is you know not only how you're impacting and getting in front of people but how you're nurturing the relationship following that you know a lot of artists will figure out every way possible to get the coolest look you know, from X magazine or X outlet. Um, and then they don't do anything to follow it. You know, what are you doing to nurture dedication and create that connection? Um, so one of the things I, I, I do now, um, I, I kind of consider myself a product manager because my job is to take the recordings and package them and create a, a rollout plan and a marketing plan and break the record, you know, over an 18 month cycle over, you know, three albums, five albums, whatever it is, you know, you have to have a plan. So what I tell people to do now is create a content list. I don't give a shit how many good songs you have. It's all 280 characters at this point. How are you hitting that audience again and again and again with captivating content that is going to immerse them in your brand, in your identity? You know, are you creating an emotional impact? Are you making them laugh? Like, I think one of the first things to remember that when you're creating a content list like this is that no one gives a fuck about you. What are you doing to impact them? So you create all of this content, you know, and, and you, you know, if it's just like uh, you going to your local coffee shop because you're really good at making latte art and your song is playing in the background and you teach the people and you teach people how to make lattes on camera. You know what I mean? It's like, it's educational. It, it's got your brand in, involved. Like there's plenty of different pieces that you can do to make sure you're impacting them correctly. And then you take every piece of that content and you plot it into a timeline. I break it down over 18 months typically per cycle. And then I'll do six month chunks. Um, so we'll have like a general, like the first six months, like will be super, super broken down week by week play of every single pump 
piece of content that we're going to roll out, what needs to happen to execute them, what needs to happen if we're going to secure a premiere. It'll be like, you know, begin outreaching premiere partner, secure premiere partner, begin creation, begin production on countdown graphics, you know, roll out countdown graphics, release, you know, partner, announce partnership, roll out full Facebook clip, roll out full YouTube clip and put every single step in there for six months straight. Everyone on your team needs to know exactly what they're supposed to be doing, when, where, why, and how, you know, and that timeline is an absolute fail safe. You know, if you are off track, you need to reposition. If you are ahead of the game, you're good to go. You know, it's extremely important to have that timeline just so that everyone stays together on where you're supposed to be, because, you know, there are definitely down weeks, but if you, you know, miss a week and all of a sudden you're like two weeks backed up, you get overwhelmed, you start to lose track of things, it snowballs, like that's the last thing you want because you weren't even kind of keeping track of what's coming next anyways, you know? There's always a little bit of momentum this way. Um, I think that's probably one of the best ways to roll out any sort of content. I think that that's an extremely valuable plan for newer artists as well. All right, next up we have Chamo is Dead, my friend Ian. This guy is an urban explorer as well. He's a photographer, and we met at a photography meetup several years back, and we started exploring places together, and I I love this guy. He's super cool, super rad, and super genuine person, and uh, he actually helped me shoot promo videos for my book, No Tracers, An Urban Explorer's Diary which is full of photographs from all the abandoned places I've explored. And it's full of diary entries from each exploration to tell you guys uh, what happened during that exploration, how we got in, how we got out, all the good stuff. So this episode is super special because, uh, well, I love talking about urban exploring. I love talking about going into abandoned places and, you know, almost getting caught is one of the one of the attributes to urban exploration, uh, you probably will get caught or almost get caught several times. So I wanted to bring back this episode where Chamo talks about, uh, you know, having to deal with the police during an urban exploration mission. Enjoy. It's like the one place where there's no, nobody's watching you. There's no surveillance. No. no like there's no cameras. Laser. No. Like you're not being monitored by the government or anybody no, you're, well, only if there's alarms. Unless there's alarms. And that's where I kind of go back, and I forgot to say that I also did this. Uh, can I go back real quick? Yeah. I, I did this hospital, and I told you the story on the, because um, we did our podcast, or you did my podcast. Yeah, shout out, Mom's Garage and, Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, we did a, I did a hospital too. And yeah, sure, there isn't any government interference, like they're watching you really. But t- take in mind, this is one of the dangers of bandos, that there's like a like one out of ten like that bando probably has an alarm, like if you're in Cali, if you're like over in the, in in the East Coast, it's like three out of ten, two out of ten, but like yeah. over here it's like one out of ten, point five out of ten, and this one just had to have like three alarms, dude, and we should have just walked away while we had a chance because <laughs> the alarm was already going off when we like parked our car, so because these are like these two tigers on the wall like tagging already. We were like, what's that noise? And it stopped and we were like, oh, okay, whatever. We we ended up hitting this mall and, and uh, I was with like three, four guys and 
um, it looks like Joshua twenty two seventy seven dead and some other guy I forgot. And we we get in we we're walking around his bando like how do how, they got in how do we get in you know, and we had to go through this window, and um and we got into the, to the window you know it took us like twenty minutes to find that entrance, go into the window, shoot a couple things it was kind of boring really and then we go to the down to the first floor, and I'm like second or third in the line following this guy and he goes stop stop shh and he just like, stops and we all stop. And literally, like, two seconds later, all you hear is, woo, 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 like, just, like, the alarm. And we're like, oh, shit, we got to go. Oh my God. So we run all the way back up, and we get out of that window. We run to our car, and we just wait. And then we just hear it go off, and we're like, oh, no cops. Let's go back. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we just go back again. And um, so we go in there again, and then, we, and, and then we don't trip that alarm. We go somewhere else, and we go to this hallway. We obviously trip the alarm again. And, uh, oh, no, 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 I was in the hallway, taking a picture of the hallway. I was so scared out of my mind. I didn't want to, I did not want to leave that area. And so what happened was that there was two, like, there was one hospital and then it was a bridge that connected to the other part of the hospital. So they, so I was in that part. My homies went into the second part and they're like, Chama, come on. I was like, no, nah, dog, I don't want to go, you know? Um, and they tripped the alarm and I was like, oh shit. But literally 10 seconds later, the alarm stopped. Like, the actual, like, alarms. Not the actual alarm, but just the noise. Yeah. Because they... Ugh, I don't want to say this, because, well, they're not going to know who it is anyways, but... Or what's uh, with a hospital. But they took out the actual alarms that were making the noise, and they cut the wires off. Like, they pulled them down, and the wires snapped. Wow. All three of them. And I was like, oh, my God, you sons of bitches. Like, that's crazy. So we just could, but the the only the sound was off, but the actual alarm was still probably going. Yeah, yeah, in the somewhere. system. Yeah, yeah, it was still going. Like this alarm has probably been going off five times for the past like two hours. Yeah. So, so the people that are getting the notification are probably like, "There's probably nothing. There's probably a raccoon running around inside a, the fucking bando, or, or a cracky, or a cracky, or something, yeah. whatever, you know." Yeah. And we and we're doing our thing, you know. We're taking photos, and it's an amazing like. It's just, it's sick. No surgical rooms, really. No, like, crazy, like, surgery rooms, but it's sick. And then we get to the end, like, the last, like, literally, like, the last four minutes, and we're just walking around this hallway. We're walking, this hallway is probably, like, 20 doors down. It's pretty deep, you know? And um, we're just chilling, you know? It's all four of us. We're just going through every room. It looks the same, whatever. And um, how do I explain this? How do, how do I explain this hallway? It's just, imagine a hallway... It's brown because of the lighting inside, or like orange. And every every side, the right and left side, has 10 doors each, maybe 20, you know, whatever. And we were walking, we're opening each door, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And we hear footsteps that are really loud, like deep and loud, and it's not ours. So we stop walking, and we look at each other, and there's someone walking. We're like, oh, fuck, you know. And the hairs on, on my back are like yeah, just yeah. raised, like goosebumps. And it's a cop, and he, all I hear, all I, all I literally hear is just uh, whatever something city PD get on the floor right now, blah blah blah, like surrender. And we we looked at each other, and like telepathically, like we said the words like run, run. You know that song? <laughs> yeah. Dun, 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 run. run. <laughs> yeah. And we just booked it down the fucking hallway, like like fucking just go 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 go. Oh my god, don't look back, don't look back. Fuck the cops, you know what I mean? And we got to the end. We got to the end, and like, and what what should be what should have been an exit, like push this for an exit. Alarm was sound. It was chained up, taped, 
Like, there's no way. There was literally no way. Like, you, you could not get through that. The door on our left was also the same thing. You could not go. And the door on our right didn't have anything. It just, we, I literally read, push here for, immer-, and I just kicked that shit open. Like, it, <laughs> like, I just kicked it open. Like, I do not care right now. And then we went to this room. And the other exit door, it was pretty dark, but the other exit door for, for that room was like blue laminated tape or some shit. I, I didn't care. I just kicked that shit too. Well, I didn't kick it. I'd like, like Hulk bulldozer that shit down. <laughs> and then we ended up in this back lot, like parking lot. And, and our next, like, our next thing is like, oh, now there's eight, nine foot gates that curve inside. So you can't even like. Jump out. Yeah, you can't black, climb it. These black pole gates. You can't even climb. You can't you can't do anything. And we're looking around. I'm like, oh shit, shit. And I get closer to the fucking gate. And I look back to the entrance of where we entered at, and there's two or three squad cars. Like not just like the little Dodgers, like the actual like sedans, like the four door, you know, like wow. maybe Kana, I don't know. But like and I was like, Oh my god, I'm gonna die here. Like this is this is like where my career ends. <laughs> this is where I go to jail. I'm done. And and I just found this hole in the like this these two bars. One was like just slanted to the right a little bit, so it was like someone obviously like tried to get in out there. And we just took our backpacks off, slid in there, and just ran to our car, my car, and booked it. And then we stopped at a gas station and just like pro- had a process. What just <laughs> what ha- we ran away from cops? Like yeah. Oh my god. And it's like one of those things like fight or flight is like a real thing oh my whenever god. it comes to that. You whenever cuz well first of all you don't like you may hear like whatever whatever PD but you just hear there's a fucking stranger in here. Yeah. I don't know who this is. It's yeah. a dark place. I got to get the fuck out. You now. don't know what they have. You don't know a, what they have. A gun? Yeah. Ta- meth, a, sword? a meth needle. I don't know. They could have a sword for all I care. Yeah. Like nunchucks. I need to get the fuck out. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I need to get out. So it's scary. And and if you, you don't know what flight or fight or flight is, it's kind of like the, like like, so like, your like instincts kick like, yeah. in when your survival instincts kick in. Yeah. Your anxiety, your Some people adrenaline. fight or some people run Fly, the fuck yeah. away. And usually you run the fuck away. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, I'm not gonna fight a. Co- We're no one's gonna fight a cop. No one's gonna you fight know what a I mean? cop. Um, and so, uh, and yeah, and that happened and we just, pro- and literally I looked at all those guys and I was like, I am never shooting with any of you motherfuckers <laughs> again. And guess what? It's true. I have not shot with those motherfuckers ever again. <laughs> not in that way, but like, we're cool. But like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Urban exploring, man. It's one of the craziest things to do. And I love chatting with friends about it and I love doing it. I love exploring abandoned places. And if you didn't know, I have a book about abandoned places that I have explored. It's called No Tracers, an Urban Explorer's Diary, and you can get it. Link is in the description or just go to justtheletterk.com slash no tracers. So up next, we have Caliber TV. We have Tyler from Caliber TV to talk about how they capture their content. These guys film live music videos at some of your favorite shows, festivals, and other events. And I wanted to know how they went about capturing their content. So here is a snippet from my episode with Caliber TV. Let's talk a little bit about um, how you guys construct these videos. Like, what do you, how are you setting up your shots? Where are you putting cameras? Like, what are you looking for when it comes to live music videos? Well, I would say when it comes to like live performances, um, a lot of it is us pre-planning ahead of schedule, um, except when it's like venues that we know really well. When we know, like when we shoot at places consistently, like if we're not bringing in new people, we have our angles down. 
Um, the main people who film with us, we all have a set of lenses that we use that are our standards for videos. We have our like our wide, uh, like our wide zoom that can pull tight as well as be out. Um, we have like a closer shot. We have um, generally like a a super wide on stage. Um, I mean, if you watch the videos, you'll see it. We've got a back angle that's got a long zoom. Um, but when we go out and we do things like like warp tour, just this past uh, weekend, um, we had two new people filming with us um, and they had never filmed with us before. And we also had a third person um, who's just recently started filming with us. And um, we had to figure out everything like a week in advance because we needed to like we rented gear, we rented out lenses and we had um, people with different bodies. Like that's the thing about all the caliber videos is they're all different camera bodies. They're just color graded to look the same. Um, but we're working with like, like four or five different camera companies, probably like four. Um, and, um, we have different lenses and mounts. So like we have to make sure that certain people have a, a lens that we would need. So like one of the guys, he had a 50 millimeter, um, you know, which is like a pretty good range. Um, and he also had, I think a 16. So we like decided that we would put, you know, one of them on stage with like the 16. So, and then we had another guy who had, um, like a 35 and, um, we decided that he would be best in the pit. So like we generally base things around like, um, different visuals. So like, the back angle is pretty wide and it can pull semi close. It never needs to be super close because we have pit cameras for that. So, and then in the pit, we've got me with the zoom lens, which is um, like a 12 to 35. And um, I use that for all my like whips and pans and like doing interesting shots in the pit. I do a lot of dancing in the pit. I just move around a lot to give the film my look like the look that I do um and then generally the people on the sides um lately we've had a couple where uh shows where they're using ronins where they're using stabilized equipment um i opted that we do not use ronins for warp tour for one it's extremely hot and it'll kill your back and filming three sets back to back is undoable for most people. Uh, they will collapse uh, with a Ronin. So um, we do shoulder rigs. So we use shoulder rigs. And um, I generally, the people who are around me generally have longer lenses than I do. So if I'm filming with a 12 to 35, someone at least has to have a 35 and somebody has to have like a 50 or because we don't want a bunch of super wide angles in the pit it just it'll throw things off if you jump from a wide to a wide it'll just look weird 
Yeah, and it gives it some contrast between the shots. We've kind of experimented with that all over the years on like how we place cameras and the way that we do it. And um, it all really just now it just comes down to just we're comfortable with our gear and we just know what to do, you know. Before it was like unless it's like something big like last weekend for Warped, we had to plan things out with extra people. But um, when it's our normal crew, we just show up and we're ready to go. We all know what we're doing generally. So so up next, we have Arian from Arimatronic. That is her username on Instagram. And Arian is a an artist. She's an illustrator. She actually illustrated a an image for this episode that we did together. And you can see that on the Project Freelance Instagram or Twitter or if you're uh, on Anchor or Podbean, you can actually see the thumbnail that I uploaded that is the image that Arian actually illustrated um, on the episode. So if you're on Podbean, uh, I think Spotify might also have the custom images. I'm not really sure. Uh, some places I upload and distribute to show the thumbnails and some of them just show the Project Freelance logo. So yeah, definitely check out the illustration if you have a chance to. So I wanted to ask Arian, uh, as a younger person, how long it took for her to start making money at illustrating. So talk about how you started getting paid work from, from your drawings. When did it go from just doing it as a hobby to getting paid for it? So I... Geez, that was probably like four years ago or something. Somebody saw one of my drawings and was like, wow, I paid someone to do something like that for me. And in my head, I was like, I would not sell my art. I did not think I was worthy of it. And it was actually not that person I sold it to. It just gave me the idea, planted the seed. So I posted commission prices and I was just doing really tiny digital outlines at that time. So I think it was like $10 or something. I would give someone a little tiny outlined drawing of themselves digitally and one person sold it and it was like the best day of my life I don't even remember what I did with the ten dollars but that was my first commission and then when it came to designing from there I was just doing here and there jobs doing posters for people and as my artwork improved that's when I got braver to be like hey do you need someone to design merch for you? And that's how I started doing bigger projects. And then I think probably my biggest project to date so far was working. I did a promotional poster for the Netflix show Disenchantment. And that's from the creator of Futurama, which is my favorite show of all time. But there's no chance I can work on that since that is long gone, unfortunately. But I got that by just drawing fan art. And they saw the fan art and were like, hey, we would love you to design this. So just like, being a presence has helped me so much, and I, woo, I am so grateful for that. That was probably like one of the best notifications I could ever get. <laughs> wow! No, tell me more about that. Tell me what that experience was like. What did they say? How did they like? How did they get in touch with you? And like, what did you do for them? I mean, I know you made like the the art for the show, but like, what did you or, like poster art? But like, what did you make specifically? Oh, I was I was so caught off guard. I was in my grandma's living room in Cleveland. No Wi-Fi at all. So I was completely on data trying not to use social media. And then I get an Instagram DM from the official show. And they're like, hey, just wondering if you'd be interested in working on a fan art project for us with a couple other artists. I think there's 10 artists in total. It was like one per episode. 
But when I looked into it, it was only a couple of fan artists and the rest were animators on, you know, brother and sister shows. So I thought that was really cool to be working alongside those kind of people. But yeah, I got that DM and immediately I was like, yeah, of course, just tell me what I need to do. And they informed me that it was a paid commission and I was set to work on it. The show is coming out in, I believe, September or something around that year. And what they wanted me to do is create a promotional piece for the show and kind of have it laid out as it was a piece of a book. And all of our artworks were going to be pages in a digital kind of book that were available on their Instagram page. And they were going to have them on their social medias to help get people into the show. And so that's what I did. So I just designed a piece with the three main characters. They didn't want to spoil anything from the show for anyone. So they gave us about one to two sentences each. And... We just worked along that and they gave us constructive criticism, whether or not our piece fit the episode or not, because we really didn't know what to expect. We've never seen the show and, you know, we were really just guessing. So it was a lot of fun. I still have friends that I made from that. And yeah. I loved that episode. If you guys haven't heard it, you should definitely check it out. It's super good. So the next person I want to recap is Greg Johnson. He is a music composer that I talked to and one of my absolute favorite episodes because I mixed in some of his music with the podcast so you can actually hear it throughout the podcast. And I I would love to do that more. I would love to get more composers or more audio people, people that do things with audio, um, on this podcast to show not only what they do, but show the actual product, the actual songs, the actual music or sounds that they make. So in this episode, I'm just going to bring you guys back to where he found his unique style and what it's like to create video game music. What do you think your uniqueness is that makes you stand out from other composers? Well, I think if you go back to um, just like yourself being really into like hard rock music, you know, that's what I grew up with uh, and being in the scene uh, like in the the 2000s, you know, um, <clears throat> there's a sort of an aesthetic to that um, that I grew up and I, I worked with a lot of bands. And what I think I do good in my composing career is I, I take those elements that I grew up with um, and I try to introduce them into sort of a, an orchestral setting or whatever it is that I'm doing. So if I have a big action cue, say, and I have, you know, strings and all these drums and stuff like that, I, I almost mix it like I would a rock band. Um, so very hyped, very like immediate, uh, in your face kind of attitude, even though it's maybe a more traditional like uh, type orchestration, you know, or instrument shape, instrumentation. Yeah, so you bring the those rock elements into your uh, into your more theatrical work, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I, I think uh, Trent Reznor does this very well. Obviously, uh, Danny Elfman, obviously with Oingo Boingo. Um, even Hans Zimmer was playing in bands in London in the early '80s and '70s. And I think all those those guys take an element of like pop rock and they bring it to their their style rather than coming from a traditional classical. Uh, approach, which is, uh, I almost never <laughs> come at uh, the music that I write from that um, viewpoint.
sometimes the the settings of a video game just allow you to do interesting things that you couldn't do that with something that's based in in real life if that makes sense you know if i if i did like um like an old school retro style beat em up right i can start using like chiptune and writing like really fun music that's like inspired by like early 90s super nintendo music but i can add in like orchestras and stuff like that just do stuff that's really off the wall um and sometimes like if i'm doing a sci-fi show like i kind of have to speak a little bit more narrowly in terms of instrumentation uh so i i miss video games i did one like a couple years ago but i haven't done one in a while unfortunately That was such a cool episode. Man, I love this podcast. It's so much fun to do. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening all the way. If you're still listening, we are about an hour and 45 minutes in. Thank you for listening to this recap. It's super long, but uh, podcasts podcasts can be long. They could be three, four hours long. I mean, just depends. But yeah, this is, uh, this is an awesome episode and I'm loving throwing it back to some of these. So up next, we have DJ Codebreak and I wanted to ask him how he got started in music, as well as how he met the artist he works with now, who is Futuristic. He's been working with Futuristic for uh, years now, and it's been one of the greatest things that's happened to him, and it's led to a lot of future work and endeavor, different endeavors. So yeah, I'm going to throw it back to this episode now. Enjoy. So for music, how long have you been into it? Like, What got you into music in the first place? Um, I actually started doing music when I was 12. I'm 32 now. Um, I was just, you know, dicking around with my friends and little punk bands in the garage in middle school, you know, on and off was probably in like four or five different bands up until high school and started actually gaining momentum with one of my bands. Um, I was the lead vocalist, uh, screamer, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know how hard it is to tell people about that. Uh, but <laughs> like, you know, I sing, but also, you know, it's not, you know, singing all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was doing that. And um, once I moved to Arizona, um, I kind of fell off with my bandmates and was just by myself out here. Um, I moved out here to do air conditioning. It was just a good opportunity when I was 18 um, to make some good money. And my life wasn't really going anywhere where I grew up. So I just kind of left and um, packed all my stuff up in a week, moved to Arizona. And when I was by myself, I realized I was still into music and wanted to fulfill that hole, even though I wasn't really musically talented at all. I'd been around it and had an idea. And um, so I started buying production equipment and just researching and reading books. And, um, you know, at that time, YouTube wasn't really a thing. So I, I didn't get to go to YouTube University and learn how to make beats and stuff. It was just old, old books and magazines and, you know, things like that. And just learning from hearing music, you know, listening to somebody's sound. Um, I grew up in Virginia Beach, and uh, Pharrell's from there. He's been one of my biggest influences just in life, um, just because I saw him play with a few people from there in front of, like, 20 people. 
back in the day, like I'm talking back in the day. And to see where he's at now, it's just always been cool to see somebody where I'm from do that. So, you know, I would emulate what he, whatever he was doing in sounds, but also you want to make it your own. So when I got into production, um, the next step from that was like, okay, how do I get my music out there live again? Or like, I wanted to be on a stage again because I was just used to being a front man, but I didn't really want to be, you know, like a, a rapper or a solo singer or anything. I didn't really feel like I had that much talent. So I was looking for other artists to work with. And I found myself into the DJ world because it was like, you know, as a electronic producer um, that was right about the wave when people were taking off, you know, DJing and the only way to DJ um, your own music, you know, you had to make it yourself and get out there and play some shows and play other people's music and then sneak your own song in there here and there and see how people react to it and things like that. So I got my feet wet with that. Um, I was actually trying to be a DJ on cruises. Um, right before I met Futuristic, I was applying um, through Disney to do all that, but their their process is crazy. They don't joke around with people they they want to hire. Um, Disney doesn't play games, so I I had to send in like an audition tape, and I was like, I just feel like that's really awkward, and I didn't really have like a highlight reel at the time, so I kind of stopped there. But actually, during that week is when I met the contact I met to actually meet Futuristic and get that going. So when I linked up with him. I had like an audition that I didn't even realize was an audition at the time. I thought I was just hanging out with him and kicking it. And then he told me the next day that he had a couple other people come over earlier in the day and, you know, DJ in front of him and stuff like that. And he called me and was like, hey, we got a show in four days. So I signed up with him and that was seven years ago. And that has brought me incredible opportunities and friends and just, you know, I've seen things I didn't think I was going to see in my life from doing that. Up next is Lauren Babick, one of my great friends, and she is a fellow vocalist, and she is currently in multiple music projects, also doing YouTube and doing a lot of other things, but I wanted to bring back this episode to where we're talking about it's hard for vocalists to find the right instrumentalists to do covers for, so enjoy this. It takes more time as a vocalist to get somebody to do the instrumentals and f- like even find that person. Oh, you know? yeah. It's hard to find people that can do it well because I think, I think another element that is really important is um, not only that you're putting out content, but the quality of the content. And unfortunately, I've made the mistake of like, setting my bar really high <laughs> like, and and anything that is sort of lower than that um anything any like content that I put out that is lower quality than the last thing I put out it's kind of like well shit like now you're just downgrading you, do you do you ever struggle with that? You're just like well, shit. I gotta oh, put totally. out. I gotta put out the same quality content that I did like last time. So you just stress about it. So I've kind of fucked myself in that way <laughs> because um, now I now it's like you can't go back. So now it's finding like that extra um, extra you know five percent of of talent of people for your team that can bring that extra quality and that's extra hard to find these people so it it's another obstacle to kind of overcome up next we are talking to alex bortulosi he is a 
games designer and he owns a company called Krakatoa Underwear as well. Um, but he used to work for Treyarch Games and they created the Call of Duty series. And did you know that Call of Duty Zombies started out as just a joke, as a little side project? It wasn't ever intended to see the light of day. Listen to this. One of our designers used an animation from a soldier coming out of a, a, a structure on, in flames. So he's dying. So he's just walking funny and then he collapses. So they used that animation and put it on a soldier's body, on a German soldier's body. And it literally made like a tower defense game. They put a little house in the middle and made zombies coming from all sides. And you had to just shoot them, you know? And that was simple. And then they put like, okay, let's put some. So while the guys were just finishing the game and, and the guys had some time off, this guy was there, Jesse. Jesse Snyder is his name. I like to tell you because a lot of stories, including a Troy arc, that don't take him position. He is Jesse Snyder. Had Jesse, I remember that. Jesse Snyder was there in his room making sure that that thing, and then suddenly people start playing that more than actually playing Call of Duty <laughs> for testing because it was more fun, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then they couldn't hide it we showed up and they liked it, you know, and then it released with a very uh, simple mechanics in the beginning, and then boom, became this huge monster, right? Um, but it was funny how, how humble beginnings. One guy, a couple guys just got there, got the animations, put together stuff, and boom. And to this day, they still don't get the credit every once in a while. It's like, come on, guys, no, 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 no. You know, everybody, as soon as some communication comes from guys on Triarch thinking they can take the credit from it, and we got like, no, 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 I was there. It was not you, it was that guy. You know, so yeah, Jesse, Jesse worked on that. Um, and and it's, it's, a great, it's a great, it's a great add-on. Like, I love it. That was such a good episode. I got to go, actually go to Alex's house and meet him for the first time after knowing each other online for several years. And it was so cool just to hear about his time at Treyarch, his time making video games, and he also worked on Spider-Man. If you guys haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. It's absolutely incredible. So up next, we have Boston Schultz, a live music photographer, and in this episode, we talk about a lot of things that have to do with live music photography, but specifically, I wanted to bring this part back. We are talking about um, how to find publications and how to get permission to sell your photos from live music events as photo prints to make some extra money. What do you do to get in touch with publications? How do you find these these people to work with? How do you, more importantly, how do you find publications that are willing to pay you for your photography? The payment part is the hardest struggle. I think the majority of the publications uh, that I know of don't pay. And the problem with me and like, I guess how I work is that I try and find a publication that like, if they don't pay, at least I can license out the rest of the photos. That way, if I'm shooting something for free, okay, I'm not getting paid for that but then I have those photos that are like my own and copyrighted under me that I can then sell later on. So either selling those as prints or licensing them out to an agency. That's normally how I personally make money. 
Um, the publications that I currently work with, they don't pay me, but they get me huge, huge access that I can't get on my own. So then once I have that access, I have those photos, I find the ones that I like and print those out and sell those photos. So it is a struggle to find publications that are willing to pay. And personally, I don't have any tips on that because I haven't found one recently that pays. Um, but reaching out to publications, I feel is pretty easy because most of them now are very like social media content focused. So just like scrolling through local kind of hashtags, whatever's in your area, and then just finding out who's posting and reaching out to them. I've had so much good luck by just sending out emails saying, hey, I'm really interested in working with you guys. Like, here's my portfolio. Please reach out to me so we can talk about this further. Um, especially because I don't put any information out there about like, I'm not like, hey, I wanna get paid. Like, make sure you guys pay me. It's just, hey, I wanna work with you. And then let's negotiate something so I can sell those photos afterwards. Um, so that's been really successful for me. And up next, we have another live music photographer. This is Sam Medina. He works with NF. If you don't know who that is, turn the radio on, go to Spotify, just look him up. He's absolutely incredible. He's a rapper. He doesn't swear in any of his music. Pretty cool. I kind of dig it. And uh, so Sam has been working for him for the past few years. And I wanted to ask him what it was like to work with NF or what it has been like to work with NF and what his creative process is like when he's making recap videos and doing all this stuff that he does on a daily basis as far as content goes for NF. Uh, it's great. So he's like the first rapper that I've gotten to work with. And actually, when I first got offered the gig like three years ago, I didn't even know who he was. And that's like a lot of people that I'm noticing these days. But it's crazy how much he's grown since those three years and how much more attention he's getting now. Um, but the tour is great. Uh, Nate's a super cool dude to work with. He's very low key, but he's like he's one of the funniest people that I know. And it's a good time doing that tour. So. I uh, really enjoyed it and uh, looking forward towards the next one. So tell me about your process. For example, we used your video from Red Rocks because that's what made me want to hit you up uh, mm -hmm. that Nate posted on his Instagram. So that video, you've got stuff from before the show. You've got stuff from during the show. You've got all kinds of stuff. How did you plan that kind of video out? Do you always shoot pre-show to post-show? Like, What's your process? Um, I kind of just get an idea. I mean, for the scale of that show, and I've shot Red Rocks a bunch, um, I kind of want to get a little bit of everything that's going on during the day. So get them setting up. I wanted to get them setting up all the gear because it's a pretty big production. Do time lapses of people during the day because it's Red Rocks. It's a massive show. It's like 9,000 plus people. Um, and then, yeah, when I do shoot the show, it's, since it's such a big venue too, I kind of have an idea. And I've seen the show, you know, two weeks worth. So I know when the, the moments are. I try to plan out, you know, where I want to be in certain spots. Um, so I have like a routing as far as where I go um, during the show. And then, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then the editing, I kind of just, I have some ideas, but a lot of the ideas actually come to me while I'm editing. Um, so when I'm actually like laying out the tracks on the timeline, and looking at the selects, then I kind of start getting ideas as far as like um, how I want the edit to be or look or what the float is going to be. 
Um, so I kind of make sure I get everything shooting wise. Like I try to get all the like things that I know I need to get. And then I kind of creatively make the edit up in the process. I don't really think about it too much ahead of time unless there's something specific that I know I need to get for the edit basically. And then what's your turnaround time typically? Are you editing that night and getting stuff to the artist the next day? Uh, yeah, the photo. Well, it depends. Like, uh, different artists want different things. So Nate's not too picky about, um, when I give him the videos and stuff, as long as it's like he, he likes it and he's approved of it. With some other groups, they want it like the day after, which I do do. So like on the Revolution Tour, I'll give them photos and video like the morning after the show. Um, so it just kind of depends on what the artist wants, which is nice. It's actually nice that Nate kind of gives me some more freedom to as far as when he wants it, because that gives me more time to make it better, basically. This next episode is with Eli James from Ghost Circus Apparel, and he created this clothing line, and now it's worn by some of the biggest rock stars in the world. And it's so cool to see how much he's grown over the years since I first met him. And so I wanted to have this part of the episode back in this recap, um, because he's talking about as an entrepreneur, you need to just let things grow. You know, you need to let it grow. You need to understand that things don't happen at a fast pace when you're building something. It takes time to build something. So enjoy this and take it. Take some notes, man. Take notes, guys. To be honest, like, uh, like I don't know. I think as as entre- as an entrepreneur, I guess I always wanted it, things to happen so much faster and like just get here and like I want to make millions of dollars and like let's let's sell this company for fifty million dollars. And uh, to be honest, without the without the little hiccups, without the mistakes, without the oh man, I just lost five thousand dollars on that. Um, holy holy moly! But at least I I reordered and redid and reproduced and made a good product for this client. And you know, moving forward, you learn all these things that if you were to explode and be this humongous entity all at once, it might be too much. And then that all of a sudden it. it your company doesn't last that long. Whereas, you know, through this process, um, uh, it's growing. It's an everyday process and that it grows and it learns and it's, it's an organism. So it's, it's a living and breathing organism. Really. Um, you got to feed it. You got, it's got to have its rest. It's got to have like everything in, in it, just as you are as a human being, you know, where you have to have rest and sleep and eat and, you know, play time and all that stuff. Um, it's kind of, weird to describe it as that but it's literally a kid and um it can't run before it walks you know so the process as fast as it seemed that it was going and is 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 um i mean you know as big as it might look from the outside looking in it's not as big as i would want it to be you know or it's not as it's not making as much as i would hoped um you know it would be or was turning into but I never had a plan, so I wasn't really like I didn't I didn't really care for that, you know. Um, and at the same time, as exciting as it would be to be a millionaire and have all this stuff, it wasn't really about making money. Um, I think I mean, we'll, we'll I guess let's see, we're we're over a million now, but it's taken five years to get there, and um, even even doing that, it doesn't mean that I, oh, uh, we made a million, so that means I, I have a million. 
that's like no <laughs> you have so much business expenses your cpa your accountants um so you don't get screwed your the irs really likes to take whatever it can um you know uh you know you have your fees that you have to pay you have, do you have any employees do you have to have coverage for them the l and i um for those people you know and you're responsible for their car payment for their get gas to get there, their food, you know, everything about that. It's just, it's so gnarly that it, um, you would think that it, it, it's, uh, I don't know. You would think that you would have a lot more. Um, but then when you really look at it like that, you go, well, shoot, I really need to make the 10 million so I can actually make some money. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean the, the growth process has been gnarly so far and, um, um, uh, it's been cool, but it's been gnarly. That's for sure. So there's a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of slow times, a lot of fast times. And I think at the end of the day, you just kind of have to let it be and have to let it grow on its own. This next episode is with Chris Anderson from the drone trainer. And he is a Canadian that flies a drone for a living. And I wanted to pick his brain about what it's like to fly drones in Canada versus America because there are different rules. And I also wanted to know how he priced his work, how he prices, what his rates are, how he came up with his rates. And if you are a an aerial pilot or if you are trying to become an aerial cinematographer or photographer, these tips are super helpful and you should definitely listen to this episode if you get the chance. Yeah, so down in the States, you guys have something called a, a Part 107. So under the uh, the FAA has created a licensing system. It's similar to ours, except it's only on the commercial side. So if you're flying recreationally, you don't need that Part 107. Uh, but the 107, the way it differs significantly, I think, from ours is that you get that license, but it doesn't allow you to do everything. In addition to the license, you have to apply for waivers to allow you to do other tasks, such as flying at night or flying in controlled airspace or um, you know a variety of other things that you know that don't just come automatically with the license the other unique part and I'm a little bit surprised about this but I, I imagine they'll go this route eventually is there's no flight test or anything you just do your exam you go down it's an in-person exam where you have to go and fill out a multiple choice test but once you pass that test you're signed off as a drone pilot which is astonishing to me because it's like handing someone the keys like, oh yeah, okay, here you passed your paper test. Now you can go drive a car. Like, really? <laughs> you can? So I think that, you know, th there's a big step that's missing there and I'm, I'm sure they're going to add it on, um, you know, in future, um, you know, <laughs> future rollouts of the rules and stuff. But yeah, otherwise, you know, it's, it's similar in a way that you need to get your license, but just a couple more steps in addition and then a couple things missing down in the states but yeah that that started in 2016 uh, so this is the third year now uh, that that 107 has been put in place in the states and i speak to a lot of pilots on my podcast as well too that are working in the states and it seems like a pretty good system uh, once you get all the nuances out like how to how to get your waivers how to apply for you know flight in certain airspace and um you know once once you get that those systems down pat then you know really it's a it sounds like a pretty good system there was nobody flying uh, where I was, and I didn't know really where to uh, base pricing on. So I, I looked at what I would charge to do uh, like a portrait session or uh, like a half-day wedding or something like that and kind of relate it to, okay, how much time am I going to spend there? And so I initially did it that way, which I changed 
shortly after I started because I realized that there's so much more involved on the flight side than there is just with showing up with my camera and you know letting it rip at a wedding and you know dancing and you know drinking with everybody and doing that thing right like it's it's a different beast altogether so the uh, flight side of things I started off uh, quite low and there's two reasons behind that one that I just mentioned I guessed and second was I didn't have anything to show so I had to just get um, you know get some samples so I did the first couple jobs for absolute dirt and they worked out great though. So I was able to get a lot of good material from my portfolio and then take them to the next one. So for example, the first golf course I did, I think I charged something like 250 or something like that for about seven or eight holes of a golf course. So doing fly throughs. So from tee to green and then some shots and some photos and things like that. And then the last golf course I did, I charged $4,500 for. So it's, it was a learning process and it really it helped me get to that next level of you know having the portfolio to show and then having the skill set to say I've done this before and this is what I can do for you and that worked out a lot better like I find you know you can you can dream up a whole bunch of different things but you can't always explain it to the client if you can show them what you've done for another client and explain the benefits of it and you know you don't have to say how you did it but just say that you can do it and then that speaks volumes in comparison to just you know describing it saying oh I can do this and that for you at your golf course and they're like okay well trying to imagine it I don't really imagine it as good as what you can do so I don't see the value in it but being able to show it that really really made a difference Um, and then yeah for pricing I have I created a little spreadsheet actually that I utilize to figure out what I'm going to do for pricing and it takes into account uh, everything from travel time to the price of fuel at the time how many, I guess for you guys, from how many miles I'm going to drive to get to the location, how much time I'm going to spend there, and how much time I'm going to spend in processing afterwards uh, to really figure out what pricing should look like. Because it's easy to get stuck in a trap of thinking like, oh, I just got offered 500 bucks to do this job. But then if you end up driving three, four hours, and then you're there for six or seven hours, then you have to drive three, four hours to get back. And then you're processing for a full other day after that, you start dividing it up by the number of hours and amount of work you put into it, then the wear and tear on your vehicle and how much you spent on gas, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not that great anymore. So that's why I created that little spreadsheet to show really, really what's, what are my costs to get this done? And then how much, you know, how much profit am I looking to make on top of it? I loved chatting with Chris about drones. It was such a great episode and I'm so glad he took the time to uh, be on this podcast because I think that that episode is going to be one of the most listened to. Uh, It's competing right now with Josh's episode, Josh Ball's episode. So yeah, maybe this will be the new most listened to uh, podcast episode that I have on Project Freelance. Yeah, definitely go back and listen to that episode if you are an aerial pilot and you need some more tips on how to rate your stuff. Up next, we have Graham Sheldon, and I met Graham at a Sigma event, and he's done a couple Sigma events that I've covered for Sigma, and he actually got to explore Chernobyl, and as somebody who explores abandoned places, of course, Chernobyl is high on my list. I would like to get there in 2020 if possible. Um, I'm 26, and I want to get there before I'm 30 for sure, but I think I want to go next year if I can afford it. Uh, I want to bring a group of people and I want to do it properly. Super excited. Uh, so this is 
a little story from Graham's experience exploring Chernobyl, and I had to include this. This was actually the IGTV video or post that I made uh, when this episode came out. So you've probably heard this multiple times now, but this is one of my favorite episodes because, again, we're talking about urban exploring, and that's my jam. Chernobyl's sort of a thing right now, isn't it? Because, you know, the HBO series just came out, and I'm starting to see... This real this annoys me, Kay. So tell me if I should get off my soapbox. But I'm seeing these like quote unquote influencers going to like oh my reactor God, <laughs> four and hanging out in the control room, and I want to shake them. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh my God, people are so unprepared. <laughs> oh, people are so unprepared because when I went there, I was probably 24, and I went there with two other um, uh, colleagues. Um, and it, it sort of, it was right after Fukushima. So I don't know if you remember the tsunami hit the plants and then, you know, yeah, a bunch yeah. of radioactive seawater from in Japan, right? So there was that disaster. And I wanted to go to Chernobyl and sort of figure out like, well, look, you guys have been warning people for, it had been a couple decades at that point since the late 80s of the dangers of uh, nuclear accidents. How does it feel to sort of see <laughs> see it happen again? You know, what's your what's your mindset for that? And then the story is also a little bit about what it takes to go to Chernobyl as just myself and two other filmmakers. Um, it is an absolutely terrifying place. It is absolutely terrifying. So if you see somebody on Instagram being like, oh, it's beautiful. No, no. The answer is it's terrifying. So you go there and the first thing you notice is all of the roads are raised up maybe six or seven meters, right? So you're like, oh, that's weird. Why does everybody raise the roads? Um in Ukraine. What a strange engineering style. That's not it. They had removed the topsoil around the roads because of the high levels of radiation in the ground. It's it's just everything about it's terrifying. So all the radiation is in metal, weirdly, and some in organic matter. But pretty much the worst thing you can do at Chernobyl is, say, cut your arm <laughs> on a piece oh, of like sure. rusty metal. Absolutely don't do it. So... Um, uh, we stayed overnight in this sort of corrugated metal shed facility. <laughs> um, you know, we there's a certain amount. Of, if you do the math on all this, you feel a little bit better about the adventure side, right? So if you stay a certain number of hours, you're only exposing yourself to basically the same amount of radiation you get from like the connecting flight from Amsterdam to Kiev. So, you know, really, you got to do the math. You got to know, you know, know the kinds of things you have to do to avoid contaminating yourself in a adverse way so anyway we're staying overnight in this corrugated metal metal just hotel ish barely a hotel uh there's no one else there right so hotel's too strong a shed is really what it is and i was told this story about from our fixer um or maybe it was our pa anton and a few rooms down had just been blocked off because there was this scientist who had constantly been going into this place called the Red Forest, which is sort of north. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, don't go to the Red Forest. Don't go right. to the Red Forest. So he had constantly been going in there and studying the local wildlife, which had come back in a big way, right? Um, yeah. In the aftermath of, of the accident. And he had brought so much radiation back into his room that the room was no longer habitable. And this room was, uh, I don't know, eight doors down. So think of it like, you know, a Motel <laughs> 6 setup. It's not, it's a little, it's a little close. It's like a little too close. And I mean, everything is, about it is scary. And so this, uh, and then he eventually died of cancer is what they told me. I mean, just 
straight up. So I was about a hundred feet from the reactor. Um, that's about as close as I feel comfortable getting. I would go in the reactor if I wouldn't die, <laughs> but I would die anyway. So yeah, that was a, an awesome episode. Up next, we have Annabelle Deflux, and Annabelle is a wildlife exotic animal photographer. She also photographs bands. She does band portraits and promos, but she works with high content wolf dogs and she uses them for her photography. If you aren't following her, Annabelle Deflux on Instagram, you should definitely do that because her photos are amazing. So she gets these high content wolf dogs and I wanted to know how she acquired them and where she gets them from and how she sources these animals for her shoots. What's it like to coordinate getting these animals like where do you find wolves at like did you just go into the wild and find some wolves or did you rent them like how do you find these animals pluck them from the wilderness just pluck them out of the alaska do they have wolves in alaska Ah, uh, that's actually a good question i feel like i should know the answer to this all the wolf people are just gonna hate me right now they're like how do you not know but <laughs> i don't think i don't think there's wolves in alaska I don't believe there might be. Maybe. I don't know. Yellowstone has wolves. Can tell you that for sure. (laughs) True, true. Um, And they're starting actually to move over to uh, Northern California, back where um, Northern California used to be populated by wolves, and then they were all poached, unfortunately. And some of the packs are actually starting to slowly get back over there, so that's kind of cool to see. But to go back to the original question... Um, I'm actually a part of a community of people who own uh, high-content wolf dogs. And what a high-content wolf dog really means is that there's more wolf in this animal than there is dog. Um, However, it's not a a wolf got bred to a dog situation. It's, yeah, a wolf got bred to a dog longer than, or many, many years ago, probably longer than I've been alive. And then you breed wolf dog to wolf dog to wolf dog, to wolf dog, to wolf dog, until you get to this point now where you have animals that have very, very high wolf percentages and they are completely unrecognizable or like indistinguishable from a wild wolf because they really do share all of the physical characteristics. However, um, they do also have some of the docile temperament of a dog and some of the the love for people from a dog. Um, But not to be confused, these are definitely not dogs and they do require licenses and permits to own and are... Most definitely not for the faint of heart because this is still not a domestic animal. But I'm a part of a community of people who, who own them and raise them and take care of them. And these people are part of uh, ambassador programs in which they use their animals to educate the public on wolves and saving the wolf because the wolf is an endangered species and incredibly vital for the ecosystem. And they tend to partner with uh, big wolf sanctuaries and wolf facilities such as the Wolf Education Project and Julian, uh, Wolf Mountain Sanctuary and Big Bear, and facilities such as that. And I'm very good friends with those private owners, and that's where I acquire the animals for these photo shoots. Um, but for anyone who wants to pursue this, make sure that the owners have a proper USDA license to be able to have them in photo shoots, because you can be on the hook if they do not. And forbid something happens during this photo shoot, you really don't want to muck around with that. Especially because the people who do own them really do need um, to know what they're doing and to have the proper permissions to display these animals in a commercial setting like a photo shoot. So in 2020, I hope to work with Annabelle in some capacity 
because I would love to photograph high content wolf dogs, foxes, and the other amazing animals that she gets to work with on a regular basis. It just sounds like something so incredible to be a part of. So episode 99 is the last episode I'm going to be recapping for you guys here on this episode of Project Freelance because this is episode 100 and we've done 100 episodes, so why not finish it off with the most recent episode with Jay Klaus, aka Refuge. He's a sunset photographer and he's also a videographer and he believes that video is the future and I agree with him. I think that we are going to a place where photography is moot and video is going to be the next thing that everyone is consuming. I mean, 95% of the content on the internet that is consumed is video content. So here is Jay talking about his feelings about video being the future. The future is video. You know, you could post on Instagram, you could post photos all day, and, and that's cool. Uh, but what really engages people now in 2019 going into 2020 is is video. Like, Everything is is about video right now, um, and you know it's, I, I don't think that people really understand uh, like business owners really like fully understand like the power that video has for their business and for I mean literally it could be any business, um, and so that's kind of like I just kind of try to show them the value um, of what that video can accomplish. And right now I'm brand new, so I'm not like charging a whole bunch of money. You know, it's not it's not a huge investment for them. So I think it makes it a little bit easier uh, to make that decision. I read a statistic somewhere that said 90, 90 to 95% of the content that will be consumed in 2020 will be video content. So for anybody out there listening that may have a business or maybe you're just an individual and you're trying to figure out how to promote yourself, video is going to be most likely the way to go here in the next year. So yep. I would highly recommend you guys uh, focus highly on, on your video content. Um, so let's talk about social media. How has social media helped you grow as an artist and as a, as a freelancer? Um, so uh, on my uh, Instagram, which is basically my main social media, um, Facebook really doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, but I also, yeah. I also don't really like, I don't know, utilize it to its full potential. But I mean, for me, Facebook has been kind of like useless and I hardly ever go on it. Um, but Instagram is, I mean, the engagement and it's, it's, it's another job. I mean, you know, it's like, I really feel like I have like four jobs because Instagram is, is, is a part-time job too. Um, and I think that there are a lot of creators that don't see it that way and they have a business and they just post something, but then they don't engage. Um, and they're not really like thinking through on their hashtags and their, the time they're posting and all this stuff. And, and, and I've been doing that, uh, since day one, I started this, this Instagram account in, uh, on December 20th of last year. So almost a year. And, I put a lot of focus into like what I do on my Instagram. It's not, there, there's hardly any random uh, stuff. The only thing that kind of like has hurt me um, a little bit is the fact that I haven't really showcased video very much on my Instagram. Um, <clears throat> uh, most of what I have, I started off with landscape photography on my Instagram and most of it's like, 
seascape sunset related photography, uh, which the people that are following me really, really love. Uh, but when I post something that is not related to a sunset or, you know, wave crashing or uh, the Huntington Beach Pier or whatever, it gets way less engagement. Um, and it's just because, like, I think people are like, oh, well, that's weird. Like, you know, you're the sunset guy. Um, so uh, 2020 is another goal for me uh, this next year is is to start to diversify. And then I also have another account, another handle that I might be, like, pushing my other content on and then trying to promote that cross promotion. So just trying to figure that out. But, uh, yeah, social media has been very beneficial um because you know people find you on social media and if you're engaging um people want to work with you and you know it's like i've got i've got most of my photography type stuff my uh, photography type work through my instagram Wow, 100 weeks of Project Freelance. I can't believe I've not missed a week. I Honestly, I feel like this is the most consistent thing I've done for a while. You know, I was doing daily vlogs for about three years, four years, three or four years. And that was uh, the most consistent thing I did. And then I had to start making money for a living. So I was like, oh, can't really do this anymore and make money for a living. It just wasn't sustainable. Daily vlogging is not sustainable, but I tried it, you know, I tried it and I was trying to beat my friend's world record, but they have since retired his world record. He went for 10 years and he just had a baby. And so he stopped daily vlogging, which is totally understandable. Now he's doing it like five days a week instead of seven days a week, something like that, which is still crazy. But yeah, I I gave it a shot and then I was like, nope, this isn't for me. I got to do something else now. Uh, I wasn't making money on YouTube. I'm still not making money on YouTube. I've been doing it for like 10 years and I, I haven't made uh, very much money on YouTube. I used to make some, but I think I got kicked out of the algorithm or something preferred. Uh, I might not be Google preferred anymore. I don't really know. But regardless... Thanks for supporting everything I do, guys. This podcast, what I was trying to say is this podcast is the most consistent thing I've done since I was vlogging. So thank you for listening to this every week. And uh, if you guys liked this episode, if you're still here, wow, you're going to get 10% off of my book. All right, go to go to justtheletterk.com slash no tracers, pick up a copy of the book. And for 10% off, I'll use the code freelance. Use the code freelance for 10% off your order. And that's just my way of saying thank you for listening to this entire episode of this podcast. If you did listen to it, please let me know on Twitter at Project Freelance. And a link will be down in the description for the Twitter, as well as my other socials and all the other good stuff that you guys can check out at your leisure. There's affiliate links. There's all kinds of stuff. Hopefully we get some sponsors with these next 100 episodes. I have reached out to a couple people and... I'm waiting to hear back. I also reached out to Dr. Pepper, guys. I submitted Project Freelance to be sponsored by Dr. Pepper. So if that happens, I will 100% let you be the first to know. Holy crap, it would be crazy. I've been trying to get sponsored by Dr. Pepper for years. Hopefully it happens in 2020. Ooh, 2020 sponsorship, Dr. Pepper. I wrote it on my goals list, so it has to happen now. (laughs) All right. I will see you guys. Well, I won't see you, uh, but you'll hear me next week on Project Freelance. We are going to start season six of Project Freelance next week. 
thank you guys so much for listening. You are the absolute best and I cannot wait for another 100 episodes of Project Freelance. If you want to be a guest on the podcast, you can hit me up at justletterk.com slash contact. Shoot me an email or you can just go email me at contact at justletterk.com. And let's chat. Let's get you on this podcast. If you make $1,000 or more a month freelancing, I want to hear from you. Cool. All right, guys. I will talk to you next week. Stay strong. Keep enduring. Go out and go create something.